Louder! Live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. After three spectacularly successful slasher films, Paramount Pictures looked to write the next chapter in the book of Jason Voorhees. A chapter, mind you, that was intended to be the final, but little do they know, they were just getting started. Now, speaking of just getting started, in addition to bringing you an in-depth retrospective for Friday the 13th, the final chapter tonight, the Black Lodge is also going to be paid a visit by the lovely and incredibly talented Judy Aronson, who is going to once and for all dispel those long-standing rumors about her iconic and controversial death scene. Now, this awesome revelation was a last-minute addition to the episode, so we're going to drop Judy's audio right after the commercial break. Just bear in mind that Fat Tony and I will also be talking about it a little later in the retrospective, just with uh, far less context, let's say. Either way, this Friday the 13th is going to be your lucky day, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Madcap 3 Entertainment presents FrankenCon. On Saturday, May 14th, Joe Bob is back in town and he's bringing Darcy the Mill Girl with him. And it's a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 reunion as the Scream Queen himself, Mark Patton, will be on hand along with Nightmare 2 and Hellraiser Bloodline star Kim Myers and Nightmare 2, Alone in the Dark and Wishmaster 2 director Jack Shoulder will all be in attendance. Along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre star John Dugan, a.k.a. Grandpa. As well as a rare appearance by Pumpkinhead, Society, and Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 5 star Brian Brimmer. And get ready to rock with the horror band The Casket Creatures. And last but not least, Nigel Bach, Bad Ben franchise director and actor, will be gracing us with his presence. FrankenCon takes place on Saturday, May 14th at the Hilton Knoxville Airport on 2001 Alcoa Highway, Alcoa, Tennessee. VIP and general admission tickets on sale now at frankencontn.com. VIP tickets are limited and going fast and include activities like a full screen of Nightmare 2 with the live cast commentary. For more info on prices and activities, visit us on Facebook or Instagram at FrankenConTN or on FrankenConTN.com. See you on Saturday, May 14th for the first annual FrankenCon. Card subject to change. Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? A mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to RantArmy.com. And if you don't buy something, then fuck ya! Hey there! 
This is Judy Aronson from Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And I played Samantha. And I wanted to thank the Rants from Black Lodge Podcast, who are producing a final chapter retrospective and uh, asking me about my death scene, which I'm sure many of you have heard about, but I probably have some information about it that I could give you that might dispel some of the rumors. Uh, yes, as I'm sure many of you know, it was shot on a very cold night in a very cold reservoir. It was really cold. So cold that the crew were all wearing ski clothes, parkas and, and hats and gloves and scarves. And, and of course, I was in the water from sundown to sun up. And so the way it was shot was there was a raft and they put a hole in the raft. And I actually put my feet through the hole and then leaned over my upper half of the body leaned over and then they put a fake back onto my back and that's actually where the machete uh went through me ted white is supposed to kill me it got pretty intense and uh it got to the point where i was literally shivering i couldn't talk anymore i I, I could hardly move and so ted white stood up for me and he said that he refused to continue unless they took me out of the water to warm up that is all the truth and that did happen and it was a pretty crazy night and at that point they did take me out of the water and they did warm me up and then bring me back into the water to finish i did get hypothermia which was not fun i don't remember driving home all i remember is getting into my roommate's bed i was in college at the time my roommate's bed just to feel body warmth next to me because it was it was beyond but the part that is not true that's going around is that i didn't get along with Joe Zito and that he was horrible for me in the scene. And that's not true. I loved Joe Zito, our director. Uh, He did care very much about my welfare, but you know, you have to get the shot. And he was concerned. And when it got to the point where Ted said, Hey, you got to get her out of this water. He complied and as everybody did, but that's kind of the way it is in shooting. You know, everybody thinks that shooting is all glamour and let me tell you, it ain't. I've been on many sets where it's cold or it's really hot or it feels scary and dangerous or you have to jump into water that may have leeches or something. I mean, I've seen it all. So it's just comes with the business. It's part of the territory and it's what we signed up for. But Josita was lovely, our director. So I do want to dispel that rumor. Anyway, thank you, Brandon, for reaching out. I wish you all luck, Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. And thank you so much for doing a final chapter retrospective. Talk to you soon. Enjoy. Bye. Watching films is always better with friends, but... We're not always so lucky. Until now. Thanks to Popcorn Fodder on Tubi, you can see eight films ranging from brilliant to bizarre and everything in between with your host, cult filmmaker and avid movie fan, Henrik Kuto, there to take you on the journey and keep you engaged with insights, trivia, and musings. Featuring films such as The Devil Times Five, Bruce Lee Fights Back, From the Grave, I Bury the Living, and Driller Killer. 
In the tradition of Elvira, Sven Gulli, and Joe Bob Briggs, we bring you Popcorn Fodder. You can watch all eight episodes completely free when you go to Tubi.com and search Popcorn Fodder, also available on Roku and just about any other way you stream your movies. I look forward to having you all join me for another round of Popcorn Fodder. Premium Friday the 13th custom made hockey mask down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mask by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. From the very beginning of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, I have had a short list written on my phone of films that I desperately wanted to do episodes on. The movie we're covering tonight is number three on that list, and it is entirely overdue for the in-depth retrospective that we're about to unleash upon the world. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and joining me as always is the Incredible Hulk of Eaton in Bulk. You know him, you love him. Fat! Tony! Woo! I am so glad to be back, and I just want to let all you listeners out there know that number one and number two on his list are Twilight and Twilight uh, Breaking Dawn Part 2. This, the, obviously, because Breaking Dawn we, Part we 1... The book in. The, we want the bookends of, of the great Twilight. So he, he's, uh, he's Team Jacob. He's got the tattoo on his ass, but it's okay. Breaking Dawn Part 1 is just garbage. Just, Part two uh, is where they, they hit their fucking stride. <laughs> like, as soon as they got good, the series was over. <laughs> Obviously, that's not We're the all case. going to hell for that joke. Uh, we're here tonight to talk about one of the... The apotheosis of 80s slasher films. And yes, I did double check to make sure I was using that word correctly. It's the culmination of at least the first wave of 80s slasher movies. Absolutely, and that film being Friday the 13th, the final chapter, which was released April, Friday the 13th, 1984, a month and a day before I was born. I was three, because I'm fucking old. We're all getting old. We're all getting old. It doesn't, it doesn't feel to me like this was that long ago, but it really was. Yes. The uh, estimated budget for Friday the 13th, the final chapter, was $2.6 million. And to put that into perspective... That's still a really low budget for a film, but in terms of a slasher film produced by a big studio, I mean, they put a little more into this. So yeah, they, they wanted to send him out with a bang, but still leave a lot of room for profit. And and that they did. Opening weekend, $11,183,148. Adjusted for inflation, that comes to $30,008,508.46. So, to put that in perspective, it was completely a success that first weekend. What do you think the the gross was? Gross? I'm going to say 
in the neighborhood of $32 million. You'd be correct. $32,980,880 adjusted for inflation. That comes to $88,499,858.57. Holy fuck, that Rock is a solid. real way I mean, success. For you basically $3 million, you make 10 times your budget back. And they probably put a few hundred thousand into marketing, maybe a million. I don't know. Probably less than a million because I'm, I'm thinking in modern terms, but 80s money was a lot less because inflation and we're old again. But I mean, <laughs> even if they put like a quarter million dollars, it's still 10 times the. Like, I don't know why any major studio made anything but slasher films. Because they're so cheap and almost guaranteed return of investment. And that also makes you wonder, why didn't Canon Films make more slasher films? I know, that's the one weird thing. I mean, their bread and butter was was action movies, but they did make a handful of slashers. Uh, Not quite on the level of Friday the 13th, the final chapter. IMDB has Friday the 13th, the final chapter at a 6 out of 10. Fairly respectable. Fairly, like yes, for a mainstream site... As that normally always gets it wrong. I get that. That's that's okay. Rotten Tomatoes, however, what do you think the Rotten Tomato score is? Oh, fuck them. Like we'll say twenty five. Nineteen percent. Fuck them. Fuck them all to death, as Mister Garrison said in South Park. I will fuck them to death. That being the critical rating, which yet again, I critics have always hated slasher films. So we'll we'll give that a pass. However, the audience score fifty one percent. They're wrong. They're still rotten. Yeah, I mean, for I mean, as we've talked about in other things, slasher films are looked down on amongst horror fans. The latte having goatee beret wearing city liberals, which is I'm a country level, so that's different, <laughs> you know. But. A lot of people are like, oh, slasher, that's so stupid and played out. You know, fuck them. It's a good time. It's like it's like the same reason people go on roller coasters at at, car, at amusement fairs. It's it's a ride, man. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I've with you. never seen titties on a roller coaster. At least slasher movies give you titties. Fuck, man. Are are we creating a new genre? <laughs> Adult roller coasters. Oh my god. Is Bob Guccione still us? <laughs> Stop the recording now. We've got shit to do. We've like got to work this out. Write this down in detail. <laughs> Dictate this right now. <laughs> word for word. Um, Metacritic, which we have come to the realization is 100% always wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think you just need to drop them on your list of, you know, and just leave a side note every time we do a Metacritic and suck it and then just move on. What do they have it? 33% out of 100 um, even even like <coughs> films that like are are genuinely good, like you know, like critically and fan base sort of uh, like the room. On. Yes, the room or Planet Out from Outer Space. Yeah. Planet Out from Outer Space. Classics. Yeah, th- those those kinds of films. Uh, uh, and the Seventh Seal, the the funniest movie. Yeah, ever that's had. a great comedy. Um, they, they they're always wrong. Thirty three out of a hundred. I think that's even for a slasher film is. Especially one with the pedigree of Final yeah, Chapter like this is, is not just a. Their slasher films are a dime a dozen. This is a diamond in the rough. Like uh, this really is. And speaking of diamonds in the rough, we always have the good people of Google users to come on, baby. Find a middle ground of the the average human being so moviegoer. The, they are they are perfect in almost every way. Most of the time, I'm going to say eighty five. 87%. See, they never disappoint, except I can't remember what movie they actually did disappoint. But only once. Exception proves the rule. It's it's very rare that they're not sort of either 
very nearly close to our personal ratings, or it's you know maybe probably a, a bunch of bearded middle aged white guys that you know have their own movie podcast that are doing the reviews on there, and it's so good on them. You know, and that's we're a very underrepresented people. Oh yeah, uh, middle aged <laughs> white men who do podcasts. Uh, There's we're like what one of three. Yeah, do uh, one, one of thir- one of three million. Yeah, Jesus Christ! I wonder if there's some kind of federal grant we can apply for. I know, you know, they probably they should, at you know, you at thirty five and me at thirty five. We just should have got issued a check and a microphone. I wish it was that simple. If it, uh, if, if it had been that if it had been that simple, we would have been so much farther ahead. I know. Yeah. Uh, the however, the only review that truly matters. Is the Rant Army review? Come on, baby. I'm, in, I'm praying for a hundred. If in, not a hundred, close to it. In our Facebook group, I gave you guys out there in the Rant Army two options: Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, good. Friday the third, Friday the Thirteenth, final Damn, chapter, bad. bad. And in a resounding positive up upvoting scenario, we had ninety six percent. See, that's where it should be, and you fucked up and dropped the ball on this. It should have been Friday the thirteenth, dead fuck. Friday the thirteenth, not a dead fuck. <laughs> Those should have been the options. Well, the couple of people who did not uh, agree that this is a fantastic are, slasher film, they are indeed dead fucks. They are definitely dead fucks. And they probably I'll put that in the computer. That's what came out. And they probably don't listen to the podcast anyways, but yeah. I, I invite all of you out there to dox them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm joking. Yeah. I'm joking. That's not a call to action. That's a joke, people. Learn to take it in stride. Yes, we, we, we'll use what limited power we have for much greater results such as crowdfunding our topless titty coaster. T- the, 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 Soon to be on Kickstarter. Oh my god. No, we want to do it on Indiegogo. That oh, way, Indiegogo. if it fails, we can keep people's money. Yes, Indiegogo. Kickstarter requires the the, the funding. Dolby mat. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you. By the time I get that money, I'm probably not going to have any interest in making. But there's going to be titties. We're going to have titties. Well, we'll I'm, have. Titties. I won't have the interest in making a roller coaster that has titties on it. I will just spend that money on going onto roller coasters with topless women. Yeah, on coke. We you have to be coked out. Well, yeah. I'm we'll, sorry. We'll, yeah, let's... We'll, we'll have all that extra money. I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, of course we're going to spend it on. A, we're going to buy a crack rock the size of a dog's head. <laughs> we're going to do. We're going to do cocaine out of the out of the, the, the buttholes of, of the of, poshest hookers. Yeah, I mean, like, sex workers. Excuse me, ladies. High high end ones too. The ones the ones that get tested. Yeah, and the the ones that like look like they could be models in the Ukraine. <laughs> Oh, oh I apologize. No. Our, our heart goes out to the I, Ukraine. I apologize. Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Um, Czech, Czechoslovakia. Um, on Fat Tony's hit list, we have 13, 14 if you count Jason, and this is the only installment of the series that that absolutely does count. That comes to an average of one kill every 6.5 minutes. That's about right, and this is one of those movies that's not all third act killing spree although there is a third act killing spree and it's great it spreads out the kills you get them pretty pretty close from that great opening recreation to you know sparsed out through the movie to the third act killing and, spree and yet at the same time it still in slasher movie terms does take its time yes kind you, of it it gives you a little taste a little break oh hey don't forget you're here to watch people die let's kill this person little break plot teens you get to love them Third act killing spray. Yeah, and you get you get a, an, a a pretty much even blend of boobs and blood, which brings me to Stank Dick Eddie's titty tally. We have three sets 
of beautiful breast in Friday Thirteenth, the final chapter. You got twin titties. You got a weird science chick. I know that's not going to be a major cultural touchstone from people out of our our age group, but you know. Now, Fat Tony and I are not the only ones who were excited to see some exposed mammaries. Star Corey Feldman had this to say, The biggest thing for me was boobies. You know, I was an 11-year-old boy, and I'm like, I get to do scenes with boobies. Not much has changed. That's his, his finest acting moments ever, and I'm saying ever, are the scenes when he's a little kid getting to see some titty. Because that is exactly... it's He wasn't acting. That's why it was so good and natural. Because I love Corey Feldman. Marlon Brando, he is not. Daniel Day-Lewis, he is definitely not. But he's great around that because me and Brandon can attest, we were little kids. You know, we cut cop a peek of titties on Skinamax. We're like doing jumping jacks and jazzercising. Dude, I had a Ghostbusters tent. And I would, I'd, I'd put that thing in the living room. I'd wait for my parents to go to sleep, and I would do ungodly things to myself. Because uh, he's right at that age before you can jack it, but you still know you like titties. Well, it's like you, you do. It's like it's like doing a really loose push up. Yeah, <laughs> you might get carpet burn on your dick a couple times growing up. It well, happens. You, you live, you learn. But uh, yeah, no, like that. It's this is. One of my favorite, it's my second favorite role he ever did. I'm, I'm a Goonies whore. I love Goonies. And we're not going to argue. We're not going to talk. Ar- we're not going to argue the, the, the pros and cons. We of- won't debate his acting skills once. We'll just. <laughs> well, well, we'll bring it up a little bit when He's we get to him. Good movies. Uh, what Friday the 13th boasts in breast and unfortunately lacks in box office competition, it it does sort of signify the first wave of 80 slasher films were coming to an end, but they're still quite a few key films that were coming out in 1984 in the horror genre. So let's check out the stiff competition I'm gonna of give 1984. A, behind the baseball, I peeped the sheet and I just had a realization. No, I won't. Um, there is a movie on here that signals the beginning of the next wave. You're absolutely correct. I just thought of that, you know. Okay. We have Chud. Daniel Stern's second best movie after the one where he's an escape criminal doing Boy Scouts. Bushwhacked. Bushwhacked. <laughs> no. Uh, Children of the Corn. Fucking awesome. Awesome movie. No context. Uh, daycare center I went to. Her son rented this movie and put it on before she could stop it. We saw the whole initial slaughter of the adults. It's great. Don't open till Christmas. Fatal Games. A Nightmare on Elm Street. A Nightmare on Elm Street was like the opening because it's not just a slasher. It's the weird supernatural dream element. It's, it's modernizing the slasher. It's, this it's, is the beginning the, of the, the next first, wave. It's the first evolution of the genre. Simple, yes. Then we have Gremlins, fucking a touch, foundational touchstone for anybody born in the 80s. The Initiation. Invitation to Hell. Monster Dog. Which was directed by Claudio Fragasso, who you probably remember from his Tour de Force amazing film that conquered the, the hearts and minds of a generation called Troll 2. Academy Award winner for best movie of all time. Yeah, right, right up there with Highlander. Yeah. <laughs> but more importantly, that film stars Alice Cooper in a role where he is dubbed for some reason. Because the man was the most incompetent director. I'd say more incompetent than um, Tommy Wiseau. Oh, absolutely. Then we have Night of the Comet. Great classic Valley Girl weird sci-fi horror movie. Razorback. Wow. 
I did not know that movie made so little. Probably all a home video. Anyway, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Fucking, I, I don't, I remember hearing about the controversy and uh, about the protests saying it shouldn't kill and then Splatter University. Um, speaking of uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, do you realize that it got released the exact same time as A Nightmare on Elm Street? I did not know that. And at for the couple weeks that uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night was in theaters, it was destroying Nightmare on Elm Street. Hey, there's no the such thing office. as bad press and all those moms protesting. But, but the adverse reaction is that it got pulled from theaters and it allowed Nightmare on Elm Street to fill its spot. And but would not, without having direct competition, Nightmare on Elm Street found its place. So if... In a weird way, if those mothers had not picketed so hard about Silent Night, Deadly Night, we may not be in the world we are right now where Freddy is, you know, number one, number two, biggest slashers in the, you know, the, the history of the genre. The, thanks, 80s moms. Yeah, we really appreciate your, your meddling. <laughs> yes. Uh, now... You you had somewhat of a, a look at the numbers there. I'm hoping you can erase that from your memory. Uh, but where do you think that Friday the 13th, the final chapter, rests on this list? Three or four. Well, let's go down it. Number five, Night of the Comet with $14,418,922. We love Girl Night, Power. Of the, Night of the Comet. Uh, a much more accessible film uh, yeah, in a like, mainstream sense. Yeah, because, you know, normally it's boyfriends and girlfriends. The girlfriend's just going to snuggle on her man and not care about the movie. This one gives them female, like, strong, actual, good female protagonist characters, not just final girls to show. It's a, it's a very enjoyable movie. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. Number four, Children of the Corn, $14,568,989. Outlander, we have your woman! Courtney Gaines, creepiest ginger in the history of film. Of He's probably... Although that kid from Problem Child grew up to be a pedophile. No, what the fuck? <laughs> that was a total joke. He, I'm sure he's fine. You know, he has no soul, but he's fine. Well, this- <laughs> I just wanted to say something. Can you truly commit crimes if you have no soul? That's true. It's like a robot. You can't blame a Roomba for like accidentally choking a cat to death, but it sucks up its leash. So it's like gingers. Now that's scary because I live. My youngest stepdaughter's like mo- she's a daywalker ginger. Oh my god, she's gonna murder me. It's, it's well. I mean, again, it's. I'm it's, hoping I'm that, meant like, to die by the probability of you saying it. I'm hoping that that will make it not happen. That's true, but it still probably will. Yeah, it's been a nice run. <laughs> been a nice run. Uh, coming in number three, we have a Nightmare on Elm Street, the original uh, supernatural slasher, the one that really uh, reinvigorated the genre, and uh, we had an <coughs> entirely new wave of slasher films that followed suit from what it laid. Down in that first year, $25,565,199. Coming at number two, we have Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Fuck yeah. And what do you think number one is? Obviously, Gremlins. Gremlins is a huge family. It's a four-quadrant movie. You got the family. You got everything. Now, Gremlins, uh, oddly enough, almost was not the huge success that it became. Do you know what it came out the same day? Uh, I do know. Spoilers. Ghostbusters. It came out the exact same day as Ghostbusters, and for those of you who do not realize, Ghostbusters went on a fucking tear. It was like number one for like, I mean, an an insane amount of of days. It got dethroned one week by uh, Purple Rain, and then reclaimed the top spot and held it for the longest time. So Gremlins didn't really do super well. 
But here's the thing. What, when does Gremlins take place? Christmas. And when was it released? June. So we're going to have that second release. Get that Christmas it, it, money. It got released again, and thankfully it did much better later in the year. That's honestly, I do remember going to see that in the figure with my uh, dad's oldest kids. It was his weekend to have them. And uh, it was around, I must have been the second release around Christmas we all went, because I was almost four by then. I remember this. Like, I, Stripe scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I, Gremlins is is fantastic, you know Joan Dante and, and everything Phoebe that he Kate. brought. Oh God, just Phoebe Cates. Uh, she's not quite. Uh, she's not big, red bikini. Yeah, hot in that movie, but Gremlins is just it's a it's traumatized a, girls with fucked up stories about how their dad died are always easy, so it's kind of hot. <laughs> wow. We just opened into my. I'm a I, married man. I love my wife. I just, I just knocked the fucking microphone off of the table from my massive erection. <laughs> now listen, uh, Jason slashed his competition, but to fully appreciate the final chapter, um, we're gonna have to take a trip back to 1983, 1984. So let's go from page to screen. With three successful entries, Paramount Pictures looked to bring back Jason to the silver screen with another outing. An outing that at the time was planned to be the last, but it didn't quite end up being that way. Uh, when Paramount announced a fourth Friday the 13th at the end of 1983, the studio was feeling the critical backlash against Jason. The decision was made. It was time to kill off Jason once and for all. Eh, kind of. Uh, producer Frank Mancuso Jr. had this to say. When we got done with three, I was like, okay, what I really want to do now is I want to bring this thing to an effective close. We'll do some things that refer to our past, we'll bring this thing to its rightful conclusion, and we'll be done. Now, that task of bringing the Friday the 13th series to a proper end was giving, it was given to an unlikely writer by the name of Barney Cohen, who you have probably seen some of the works of if you're, uh, you know, an 80, 90s or 90s kid. He wrote episodes for He-Man, Thundercats, uh, Brain of the Teenage Witch, and a film the, that will stand the test of time as being what Fat Tony refers to as the second greatest of this series. Happer, had the Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, yes. the first best being... Happy Hooker Goes to Paris, obviously. But, you know, it's the second. Hey, the man knew titties and he knew teenagers because Sabrina was about teenagers. I will only watch that to masturbate to Melissa Joan Hart. But, you know, it was, it was, I was entertained as well. And obviously, He-Man and Thundercats. Fair, fair enough. Just straight masturbation. Oh, well, I mean, Thundercats is basic horror. <laughs> it's She's, furry porn. It is furry porn. Do you th- how many how many fucking furries found themselves? At least a couple thousand. Have you have you ever watched Thundercats and been aroused? The answer is yes. Always. <laughs> have I ever watched it and not been aroused? That's that's the. Uh, also, yes. The Snarf episodes. Not, yeah, he doesn't do it for well, me. Well, I mean, Snarf... It's it's not that Snarf isn't sexy. <laughs> but we'll move on. Um, despite on paper not seeming like a natural choice to write a Friday the 13th film, Barty Cohen introduces new elements to the series by doubling down on some existing tropes, but at the same time, it goes against some of the others. He had this to say about the changes he made. In most of the Jason movies, I think there was no parental supervision. In ours, there was because we thought that made it scarier, especially when the parents were made to disappear. So, focusing the story on a family unit, does that make the final chapter scarier? It does, because, again, as a child of the 80s, not a teenager, but still, like a kid, your parents are your rock, your security. 
in a, in a proper parental relationship. And if they can't save you, but I just thought of something, I'm going to argue there is definite parental supervision in Friday the 13th part one. <laughs> Waiting for it, yeah. <laughs> there's only parental super. There's POV parental supervision. That that is supervision uh, for supervising the killings. But I'm just saying, I just had to make that joke. You know, you're you're absolutely correct. But yeah, if if your parents can't save you from the monster, nothing can. It shakes you. It's foundationally to your core unsettling. Now we'll talk more about this when we get to Corey Feldman, but Barney Cohen also makes a huge change by including a child into the story, that being the character of Tommy Jarvis. Child characters in not just slasher movies, but just generally in movies are not my thing. Does having a child character in this film make it scarier, or is it annoying? It's, it makes it way scarier because Jason straight up out to kill that little fucking kid. And I want to take this point back to when we did our part six review and you and Scott were like, no, Jason would never kill a kid. He straight up spends half of the last third of this movie trying to kill a child. So yes, as I said in that review, it, I'm not saying he's looking to kill the kid, but if the kid's got in the way, he'd bat him away with a machete and not bad an eyelash. As, as much as I do not want to agree... I, I do have to give credence to what you're saying. You can't because, deny science. Because he he does make a mad dash. Now, he's more interested with get, in getting Trish. And that's his downfall. But he does Corey make... Corey gets in the way, so what's he going to do to Corey? Kill that fucker. Well, he, he's unsuccessful. But, unsuccessful, but, but he but, tries. But there does seem to be a concerted effort to kill Corey Feldman, which I'm sure several adults have wanted to do over the years. I've, several adults probably still want to do to this day. Yeah, the ones who touched him. <laughs> oh, man, I just made myself sad. That's horrible. Uh, now, whether you're a pro or anti-kid character in a slasher movie kind of person, we can all agree that a well-written, likable character can raise the stakes of your story. With that in mind, Cohen set out to craft a script with realistic characters. Cohen had this to say about what director Joseph Zito wanted from his characters. He said, all I want you to do is make them real. Kids that look real, feel real, and whatever we do to them will be horrifying. Absolutely, because this is one, These, this is the best cast, hands down, best cast of kids, because these are like real teenagers. I mean, I'm not, we weren't 80s teenagers, we were 90s teen. you were like early aughts, because you're lame. I was, I started my teenage years in the 90s. Ten, I'm talking like high school, your, first, your start, freshman year was 99. That was my senior year. I technically year. started in 98, but, <laughs> yes. but, but the what I'm saying is, like, we can't identify with exactly what they were doing, but they feel like people we'd hang out with. They're, the conflicts they have makes sense. It's not like there's a mean bitch girl, and it's not like there's there's the kind of pervert, but he's not like a, he's not a Shelly. He's not an annoying, overly obnoxious. I love Shelly, and that's where he got the mask, but that dude's a bit much. The stoners they're, in three were a bit much. These are real, grounded characters. Both Shelly and um, Teddy are both incels, 
who would be super problematic in today's (laughs) Twitter age. But, but hashtag good job, Jason. But but, yes, Jason, you 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 were you you saved us from um, from their philandering ways. Um, But but as far as characters go, I mean, all these characters are likable. They are. Is this the most likable cast? Yeah, it absolutely is. And like the only, and they all leave an impression. Some kind of impression, except the boyfriend that kind of makes out with the twin that gets stabbed in the dick. He's just kind of there. Yeah. I know nothing against him. Some people are just kind of there in your group. And he pays a hefty price. He does. Like, Jason saw it. Jason, had, you know, he was tired. He did that to fight the patriarchy. And he did that. <laughs> he, he, he solved a lot of world problems he during did. this. Hashtag girl boss. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Reagan. <laughs> uh, a duly represented uh, authority from the state to, yes. to, to stop uh, problematic behavior from, from adolescent male white children. It did a great job. Teens. All those kids growing up then, they're all normal, well-adjusted. Yeah, there, there have been no, no problems. No, fl- no problems whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> unlike some of the characters from the series... Um, all the characters are likable to some degree and, and seemingly have no reason to be murdered. Now, I have a theory I want to postulate about this a little later on when we get to our victims, so remind me about that. But does it make this movie scarier that none of the characters, at least on the surface, have a reason to be killed? Yes, it's absolutely like, you know, there's it's always fun... To have the asshole in a slasher you want killed. Like, I think I'm, my favorite example is actually the blonde guy in the remake. He's such a dick, you just want him to die. And that's fun, but scary? Yeah, none of these kids, they deserve to go out, drink a few beers, have some a little bit of sex, and go on with their lives. But no, they meet this unstoppable force of just, that doesn't just wants them dead and gets his way. That he does. Uh, the changes implemented by Barney Cohen would l- be hugely successful. Paramount was originally going to release the film in, no- in October of 1984. After wrapping the film, uh, studio head Frank Mancuso Sr. screened some footage um, that led to so much enthusiasm that they actually pushed the date up to a prime spring release. Now, I don't know that a lot of people quite understand of like the reasoning as to why certain things are placed on the schedule the way they are but you have to think about this spring it's past the cold season so people are more apt to come out go to the movies uh it's right after people have got their tax returns so they're quote-unquote hood rich yeah and it's right before blockbuster season so this is like the the perfect point for a mid-range movie to maximize its profit and they had enough faith that even though this is what they thought was going to be the end of the the series, I guess they saw the film and thought, well, this has the maximum amount of potential to be as big a hit as possible, so let's put it in a prime position. That being said, what do you think about horror films not being released in October? It does seem sort somewhat it's counterproductive. Always kinda off. It's always kind of off. Like... Around Halloween, now it can get to the point where it's saturated. Sometimes, like I, when I think of horror movie releases, it's around fall, late summer into early fall, 
or weirdly enough, a lot of them, even the ones I like, are kind of dumped off in January, February, like March. Like X just came recently. You said it was amazing. I love And it just got dumped X. a few weeks ago. And that's kind of still in winter. It's it's heading towards spring. Uh, That was, let's see, that was like... Uh, March 4th. Wasn't it was it? March, yeah. So Early March. So still it, the, the, dumping ground the, time. The stigma of the January, February, March dumping ground movies. is not what it used to be. Yeah. Um, but still, I mean, lots of companies still did that. They're like, okay, we'll get our money. This is a dead season. We'll put our horror. So in my head, I honestly kind of associate that time still, but I still do prefer like a good October 1st where, you know, like the Saw movies, they'd always come out in October. I don't even like them that much. Paranormal activity. Paranormal activities. You, it's tradition. However, is it wrong not to release a Friday the 13th film on Friday the 13th? I, well, you know, it's always great when they can, and like th- these people did, and apparently in a prime spot, too, so that's great that it worked out that way. And you know what we have this month? We have a Friday the 13th, the day before Frankencon. Yeah! So it's going to be a fun couple of days Season right there. Knoxville. I'll let you touch my penis. He, that's, that's a guarantee. Guarantee. Over the pants. I, I might cry. Over the pants. Over the pants. And I'll be crying. There will be no skin-to-skin contact unless... You have the VIP ticket. Yeah, if you have a, if you have a VIP <laughs> ticket. Or or if you have a... Um, a, a uh, it has to be an 800 or plus word essay as to why you are applicable to touch Fat Tony's dinger. We'll dock then. I mean, unless you're a woman, I can't sleep with another woman. I'm married. But they can touch you. They can touch. They yes. can they can masturbate you just to the point of climax. <laughs> if you if you if you ejaculate, that's then it's cheating. cheating. But if but otherwise, it's basically just a massage. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's a one step above a handset. It's like in Pulp Fisher, rubbing a foot and going to eat a woman, you know, sex or not in the same fucking ballpark. So, hand job. Yeah. Not to completion. Didn't you know? Kenzie write about that in his book? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, fans okay. fans loved Friday thirteenth, the final chapter. Critics hated it, in particularly that piece of shit Roger Ebert, who called it an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash. With that in mind, Fat Wait, Tony real quick, he's dead and burning in hell now, so that's a good thing. Oh well. And I'm an atheist, but hell exists for him. Siskel and Ebert. I'm glad your jaw right up. Uh, oh, that's fucking terrible. That being said, fuck Roger Ebert. Yeah. Um, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read the synopsis for this immoral and reprehensible piece of trash. Sounds like Mac had a movie. The body count continues in this vivid thriller. The fourth but not final in the wildly successful Friday the 13th series, Jason... Ted White, Crystal Lake's least popular citizen, returns to wreak further havoc in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. After his revival at the hospital morgue, the hockey mask murderer fixes his vengeful attention on the Jarvis family and a group of carefree teenagers. Young Tommy Jarvis, Corey Feldman, is an aficionado of horror films with a special talent for masks and makeup. Has a diabolical Jason finally met his match? And so, on a side note, as a forty-year-old man, I too have a thing against carefree teenagers. Fuck them. I don't want to. I don't want to murder them, but fuck them. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Your music scares me. Uh, does music even exist anymore? Not since nineteen ninety-seven. 
<laughs> With Steve Miner deciding not to return to the director's chair, that monumental task of helming Jason's fourth and what at the time was expected to be final murderous rampage would be bestowed upon a popular and upcoming director by the name of Joseph Zito. Joe Zito! Who has directed some of our favorite films, a couple of canon classics, both starring... Uh, Chuck Norris, we have Missing in Action and Invasion USA. Invasion USA, of course, being, as decided by us fine gentlemen at Brands from the Black Lodge, the finest of canon films. No argument. Yeah, there, there is no argument that could sway the decision. It won the cup. It did. I mean, if you, if the canon film doesn't have the cup, it's not the greatest. The only way it can be defeated now is if canon film starts up again and starts making new movies that are better than Invasion USA, which is impossible. Because they wouldn't be released in the 80s. Ex- exactly. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Norris, although I will give you this, a, a movie where Chuck Norris is like an elderly man, but you still, ha- still manages to kick an exorbitant amount of Russians' ass, I'm totally on board with that. I just want him to go into different rooms with bazookas and shoot people out of windows. <laughs> or to throw it up as, as, a, as a, mid, a mid-movie act break, he can go in with the double Uzis, because I'm sure his age, he can still hold those. Well, lights. if you have the, the shoulder straps, See? that does half the work. And it's all, I mean, maybe like, you know, just him going into random, like a nursery, <laughs> you know, a convent. But they're all bad. Like, all the babies are like cutting up heroin or something. He fucking broke me. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, he's just shooting up a bunch of minority babies. Yeah, because and then then at the end because because America because America and then it's like brought to you by President Donald Trump. Oh fuck! <laughs> All right, um, Joe Zito also directed the Alice Cooper music video, "The Man Behind the Mask," which was from Jason Lift. So he has the awesome momentum of being involved, sort of at the peak of both. Alive and undead Jason. He's getting the shocker in on this series. He's got two in the pink and one in the stink on both the high points. Which which one's both the, the sweet spot? Which one's the pink? Which one's the stink? The pink is four because that's you know when it like cultural relevance and the eighty slashers and all that. And the stink, you know, he didn't do it, but he had his little thing. And, and that he, makes part. He five, got some anal. That makes part five the grundle. The grundle, as it, as it should be. I mean, it's got some titties though. That it does some magnificent titties. Um... He did uh, Red Scorpion. Man, I'm telling you, if you have, you've, you've probably not seen it. But if you have, have not, you go watch it. You wear baggy underwear because you're going to grow extra balls. I've said this before that, like, if you're a grower and not a shower, uh, you watch Red Scorpion and you're just going to be a shower all the time. Exactly. Like, you will never be flaccid ever again. I mean, you're always going to be two-thirds chubbed. This is the this is ba- it's basically the equivalent of taking a pencil and rubber banding it to your ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's it's going to be soft, but it's going to be gloriously plump. It's the movie that gave Dolph Lundgren the highest body count of all the '80s action heroes, more than Arnold or Sylvester or anybody. That's the movie that tipped the scales. I'll tell you the movie that tipped the scales in terms of getting him his eye, eyes on him for a slasher movie success, that being 1981's The Prowler. Okay. It's 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 not Joe Joe Zito directed it fine. It's kind of boring with great kills. Like the kills are great. 
there's good elements, but there's icon like semi iconic elements that you still think of. You hear the prowler, there's certain things you think of. That movie kind of sucks. I'm I'm a little more positive in the, in the camp of the prowler. I don't put it on par with the other great 1981 slasher films, but I think I think it's it's. I'd, I'd probably grade it a little higher. It's more be like a C plus, B minus for me. Uh, definitely C minus for me. But the kills, like the kills, bring it up from like a, and it'd be a total F because that movie takes way too fucking long to get going. The plot is ridiculous. I mean, it's got some good acting, but anyway, that we're not here for that. But but speaking of the Prowler, that's precisely why Zito was brought on board as director. He had this to say: "I had made another horror film called The Prowler, which was something uh, I had produced and directed. I got a call from one of the original owners of Friday the Thirteenth, saying he had seen my film, The Prowler. It was an odd call. He said he had seen my film and thought it was good, but it wasn't going to make a lot of money." He said that if it was called Friday the 13th, it would make a fortune. He said that if I if they make another Friday the 13th, he would be calling me, and he would want me to be the director. And then sometime after, I got a call from him saying they wanted to do another Friday the 13th, that being part four, and he would like me to direct it. Now, slasher films at the time had been described as basically a half step above pornography, or sometimes just on... On par. On even, you know, playing field. Now, in terms of prestige, uh, they just were not popular. Joseph Zito made great efforts uh, to make the final chapter feel bigger and somewhat bigger than the films that preceded it, and in some ways bigger than some of the films that succeeded it. Um, Editor Joel Goodman had this to say. We craned down on a bunch of police cars arriving. Helicopter has a searchlight. Gives you a big budget feel and a very dramatic opening. Now, I love the first Friday the 13th films, but I wouldn't... It wouldn't be incorrect to classify them as being somewhat utilitarian yeah. um, in terms of the way they're filmed. Is Final Chapter the best Friday the 13th film in terms of... Cinematography. Cinematography, directing. directing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, even the, the little gothic feel... In part six, which I love, there's still no, like you said, the recreation of the end that on the set of the part three coming in, seeing all that, watching them putting an axe into a sandwich bag, which is hilarious. <laughs> but then like the pullout, the cars drive off, the sign, like it, it does have like movie with a big quotation around it feel like the, the little scene with the cameras, like, you know, on the, the gurney going into the morgue. There's a lot of like a good out like amazingly well done cinema. Like I've said, we were talking before this. This is the one that feels most like a movie movie and not just a slasher movie. I feel like that they took great chances and and when you're making a film, especially on such a low budget, a lot of it has to come down to the economic use of your time. And Joseph Zito was notorious for being a very fast director, even though like he's implementing a lot of these creative angles and, and things. And some of that may come back uh, later on in this discussion to bite him in the rear end in terms of how some of the cast uh, reacted to that. But I, I think that this is the best looking Friday the 13th in terms of it setting a mood for a horror film, but still looks like a film that could be enjoyed. A mainstream. a mainstream film. That being said, 
and I may get skewed skewered for this. I've always said that part eight is the best looking of the series. Fucking um, wrong. He, it's part eight has great shots, but it has a very direct video feel. I'm going to disagree with you. And the I, lighting. And I think part eight is is the when they get to Toronto, not Manhattan, but. Wasn't it Toronto or someplace in somewhere they, in Canada land? Yes, but the, when they're the shots where they're like on uh, Times Square and yeah, those are great. But most of the shit on the boat just feels very. Anyway, we won't debate. I just watched this movie you the like, other like, night. You're wrong. I haven't seen it since I think we watched it like drunkenly one night, yeah. probably ten I, years ago. I watched it sober, and I know what the fuck I'm talking about. I don't watch part sober because I'm not a fucking nerd. <laughs> part eight, part eight's not great, but I think I think that is probably the benchmark in terms of just straight visual. That being said, the best middle ground, it's it's got to be a toss up between four or six. Of what feels like just a regular real. See, again, movie. I'm going with four because again, some of the lighting. There's there's certain lighting choices in part six where they're outside, but you could tell there's a fucking set light on something. Or I mean, it's just little tiny things. I mean, I love the movie. I love the feel. I love the vibe. It is my favorite one of the series. But for look, cinematography, again, it also I think a couple years, a little older cameras. It just gives it a more film vibe to me in my head. Part four does. I can't think of any bad shots, any bad lighting choices. Like there's one maybe questionable angle with the dudes in the shower, wasn't quite pulled off the thing. And then the the, the cranked slow motion when the chick hits the car. That's a little. There there are some moments uh, that weren't think, intended to be slow motion, but then they cranked it down. And yeah, you can see there, the stutter. There there is a part where you see. Uh, it's between Trish and Jason that they're they're running back and forth between these two houses, and there's a part where like Trish jumps out of a window and she lands on an a very obvious pad, but she gets up and runs away. And you, you don't have see, pads outside your windows in case you need to jump out. You fool! I'm on the first I'm the first floor. I'm <laughs> yeah, a, I, I can I can handle it. Uh, any any time I stay at a multi leveled house, absolutely, yeah. I, I bear I bury them <laughs> under uh, just just in case. Ground level, cover them with a mat that looks like this random area. But but there's a shot where Jason step, steps over the area where she had just fallen, and it's slowed down. And I'm assuming that that was because because there's like a strike of lightning, and it probably the shot didn't register very well. It's probably too dark, so that's why they slowed the film. Regardless, it's minor I can, things. I can yeah. forgive those things. I can forgive those things. Um, I'm going to uh, defend uh, the the films uh, pretty much across the board. I just I love them all for different reasons, but the battle of the comments of like of what I have said and what other people have said <clears throat> incorrectly about what uh, may or may not be the best looking Friday 13th film. Leave that out in the comments below. We'll, we'll flood, flood them and we'll, we'll wade through that stuff later on. However, the attention to detail from the previous films, that's something I absolutely have to commend them for. Uh, Joe Cicito had this to say, I wanted to pick up exactly where Friday 3 left off. That was, he was on the ground just exactly where you had left him. Now, personally, I, this is one of the biggest reasons that the Jason films of the Paramount era resonate with me. Every film has bearing on the next. We all accept that the final chapter is the point where Jason definitely dies. And sub, subsequent films, he's sort of an unstopping, unstoppable killing machine. 
But in terms of part three, uh, going in uh, to the final chapter, uh, they go to great lengths to sell the fact that Jason is actually dead. Joe had this to say, I held off on Jason coming to life for a long time in the film. The audience certainly is not going to believe he's dead, but they come, they become co-conspirators in bringing him to life. They start yelling at the screen for him to get up. So instead of groaning that he gets up too soon and they say, ah, oh, this is fake, they make him get up. That's genius. I never thought of that. So what do you think, before we get into this specifically, the general continuity of the series, I mean, yeah, you could probably argue that uh, time frame um, over the course of a weekend, those early films don't make a lot of sense. But just from movie to movie, having, for lack of a better term, fan service and like showing you exactly where the last one I like left. the montages. They're great. They just, I, I am all for it. And uh, I didn't this past time rewatching Part 4, but I like watching 3 and 4 back to back. It's a nice little double feature. Uh, shout out to a gentleman by the name of Roy Dam. Uh, I, I recently got a um, a fan edit on Blu-ray of Friday the 13th Part 3 and Part 4 edited together that has some deleted scenes and an alternate ending thrown in there. Um, if you would be interested in getting your hands on this wonderful uh, compilation of two films edited to one. Uh, he has a Facebook group called MOD, which is called Made on Demand. Uh, seek it out. Uh, he's got a ton of things beyond this, but if you're a Friday 13th fan... He does some fan, great Happy Hooker you know, combo features that if, I'm a big fan of. If, if he has not done that, I'm going to I'm gonna request that because now, now that... We that, can bridge the gap between Washington and Paris. Finally! I, I feel like I feel like I've wasted my life in, in, I mean, not, in not putting them, the, the Happy Hooker cinematic <laughs> universe together. Our life starts today. Um, okay, <clears throat> uh, back to the, the continuity between 3 and 4... Do you think this has the best payoff from in terms of connecting to a previous film? Oh, absolutely. I, that's that's not even up for debate. Like one and two, like you see the montages. Two starts off with Jason killing the final girl from one, and that's a cool connective tissue. But there, that was just like a hey, let's make the sequel. Let's wrap this up real quick and show it's Jason. Between two and three, there's not really much there. I think there's a montage again, but... Well, at the end of part two, it sort of ends ambiguously <clears throat> whether or not the third act was in Jenny's head or did Jason actually jump yeah. through the window and look like a red-headed hillbilly well, kind of guy. he has man. no shoulder wound from the, the machete blow in part three. That is that is a well that you can tell. However, he does he does go to uh, great lengths to get new clothes. Yeah, he gets so. new. Bitch ruined his clothes. <laughs> he got to get a, a fresh set. Of, how dare you? How dare you call Amy still a bitch? <laughs> That's true. I'm ashamed of myself. You know, she was the star of that great movie for your last episode. You know, April Fool's Day. Yeah, I'm 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 very glad that they they all came together and we had that, that rousing discussion. I cried at one point. Like it, her stories were just so beautiful. I mean Thomas Wilson's story about murdering someone in cold blood for calling him Biff on on set. I mean I understand it though. It he shook, makes you he makes it seem reasonable. He 
he made me laugh about murder, and and that's 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 only a skill that a truly gifted actor can make you do. It's true. Now the final uh, the final chapter boasts fresh faces and a crop of very talented young actors, but little did the producers know that the star they were about to unleash on Hollywood was going to be one for the ages. That being Corey Feldman as Tommy Jarvis. All right, buckle in. This is going to take a minute. <laughs> 26 episodes of the Bad News Bears TV series, which, to this point, I did not know even existed. I think we talked about this in a prior episode. I mean, we, may, we may have, but it didn't It didn't uh, strike for me. Gremlins. So this was a big year yep. for, for Corey Feldman. Uh, the Goonies, year later, uh, huge, huge success. Stand By Me with Richard Dreyfuss, who was in What About Bob with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. Now, if I wanted to argue about the movie I just mentioned previous to that, uh, The Goonies, um, which... You uh, can do a whole lot of us. Steve, Steve Spielberg produced that in 1941. Dan Aykroyd, blah, 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 blah. You can catch my drift. But... Um, so much, so much, uh, just 80s nostalgia rolling into our next movie, The Lost Boys, uh, which we've decided, uh, between the eternal debate of Fright Night and The Lost Boys, it's a, it's a better movie, but it's not a better vampire True. movie. Uh, License to Drive. I, I love it. Uh, a very young Heather Graham. I was fixing to say, man, she can get it back in that. She can get it now. She, she, she has, can get it now in front of my wife, making has, my wife maintain eye contact She with has me. aged like fine wine. And I'm not usually a big fan of blondes, but... No, she's aged um, like sweet poon. I'm just sorry. She, she was in a movie uh, that our, our good buddy Mick Strawn worked on. What was that? Uh, where she played Roller Girl. Oh, uh, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Uh, it's crazy to think that our our kooky our kooky buddy Mixtron. We're gonna have to uh, pause the podcast here so I can go knock one out in Brandon's bathroom. Just thinking to about that. To, to out, both. Of, out of respect. Out of respect. <laughs> no, I do that in the podcast. I do that on Mike. This was Heather Graham. All right. Well, let's you know, let's save it. Let's save it okay. for the uh, for the end of the podcast. I I don't want people to get so aroused that they pass out from the just. It's gonna their soak loads. your carpet. So yeah, you're right. Aim aim for the south wing of the Black Lodge. The Friday the Thirteenth poster. Yeah, hold on. Where where are we at? Um, it's about it's about like at your two o'clock. Like, oh, so or three o'clock. Aim aim for three o'clock. I'm just going to aim for the final chapter poster. There you go. <laughs> Too uh, late. Uh, dream a little dream. Another wonderful little it's slice of life. Eighties eighties films. Uh, he was the voice of Donatello in the 1990 live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. He also came back for part three. Wasn't in part two because he was dealing with a crippling heroin addiction at the time. You mean being awesome addiction? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, until, no, un, un, he undid that by going in part three. Yeah, part two. I was sure. a little too walking out of the theater. Of part what's, two. I was a little embarrassed that I wanted to see it and enjoyed it, but I still did see it. What's and worse, it. being a crippling uh, heroin junkie or being in Ninja Turtles in Time? Ninja, Ninja Turtles three, definitely. It's a right. greater crime. It's the only crime greater in all of human history is the Holocaust. It's the only thing worse. I thought you were gonna. I, I, <laughs> I genuinely thought you were going to say Blues, Blues Brothers two thousand. We and don't I'm, speak of that. And I'm offended that you didn't go that. That's direction. the only movie I've ever walked out on. Um, he was in Tales from the Crypt presents Bordello of Blood. Not as good as Demon Knight, but it, it's a it's a it's a fine movie. You yeah, see it's, it's Angie, right. Angie uh, Everhart, Angie Hart know, singing about masturbating. Yes, two four six eight. You can watch me masturbate, and I would if you start your fucking OnlyFans, you old bitch. <laughs> 
Uh, he was in Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys, which is an unofficial Puppet Master movie made by the Sci-Fi Channel. It is so bad. I need it on Blu-ray. Somebody <laughs> release this. It's only available on DVD. It's out of print, and I do not fucking own it. And I, I spit. I spit at myself in the mirror every morning for knowing that I don't have it on the, the shelf here in the archive of the Black Lodge. Uh, most recently, he appeared in the meta Friday the 13th film within a film, 13 Fanboy, a film that I uh, backed on uh, Indiegogo. And it has been released. It's been picked up. And I still have not got my physical fucking copy, which is the bad thing about uh, you know helping bankroll a movie is that it's getting into hands of people who had nothing to do with it. And I plead to you, Miss Voorhees, in your beautiful breast, get me my damn Blu-ray. I want to see this movie. Have you heard about this movie? No. So the gist of it is that it's people basically playing themselves and an obsessed Friday the 13th fan is killing Friday Thirteenth. Okay, characters. so it's a movie, movie, not like a no, no, documentary or no. You know, this is a, this is an actual movie. It uh, I think it picked up by Showtime. Hell yeah! Um, so I mean, it it has substantial budget and a lot of you know alumni uh, from previous films attached to it, and it was directed by the lovely Debbie Sue Voorhees. Oh from, shit! From Friday Thirteenth Part Five. Um, amazing, and it was great that they got Corey to be involved with that because he's always wanted to come back to the series, but for some, he's obvious- not a child actor, and that's really re- the reason why he's not a child actor. He's he's he seems like I mean he had a low level cult for a little bit and trying to you know be a a wish brand version of Hugh Hefner, but you know. He seems all right, but yeah, after he grew up to be an adult, every role I've seen him as an adult is not great. That's I, the kindest I, way to put it. I I met Corey Feldman. Yeah, he, he owes and, you a cup of coffee, and he owes me a cup of coffee to this day. He was so nice to me. I uh, had a girl girlfriend in high school that painted me uh, the poster art for the film we're you're talking oh, about yeah, right yeah. now. Um, he autographed it. And um, he he was like, I apologize for not being in Freddy vs. Jason. And then he fucked your high school girlfriend. I wish. <laughs> I wish. Good for her. You, you'd, have let it, you'd have been cucked out for that. You know what? You know what? I'm a Corey cuck. I, I, if, you, if you've got to be cucked by somebody, may it be former child star and former heroin addict, Corey <laughs> Film. <laughs> um. Now, Corey Feldman in 1983 was just another child actor. 1984 would propel him into the public consciousness, and by 1985, he would be one of the most recognizable faces in Hollywood. His rise is truly one of the greatest success stories in the film industry's history, and a lot of that credit goes to his appearance in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Casting director Fern Champion had this to say about casting Corey. Corey walked in there, and he was so alive and so friendly, and he and I just clicked. You could see with Corey, you could really see this young man was going to skyrocket. Where does Corey Feldman rank in terms of child actors? I mean, if we're talking about cultural relevance and significant nostalgia, really high. If we're talking about talent, I mean, he's no Haley Joe Osment or... uh, I think we take for granted of... I mean... He might not have been a great adult actor. But, but he had a lot of teen charisma. He, he had it. Like, even his little small part in The Burbs. I still remember him from that. He, Pizza he, dude! He, he had a lot 
of what makes child actors tolerable to watch. And it's like you were saying, like this the the way in which he showed excitement for seeing exposed breasts oh, was, yeah. was real. That's 100%. not that's that's not acting. That's just he had an internal mechanism that made him more relatable exactly, than a lot yeah. of other because child actors, especially back then, generally were really bad. Now we had somewhat of a, a child actor renaissance during like the the nineties, late nineties, with Haley Joel Osment and Dakota, uh, Dakota Fanning. Fanning, and in like all of a sudden, it's like holy fuck! Like these kid actors are you know are actually good good actors. Well, but one little weird kid from the movie Room. Not the room, but room with the, uh, Brie Olson. Brie, or or Brie, Brie, Brie I wish that's a movie I could <laughs> get behind. <laughs> that's a weird porn parody. <laughs> Directed by Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> it all ties back together. Oh man, um, I don't think we're really appreciative of how famous Corey was in the eighties. Uh, he had this to say: "I was famous before I knew my own name." Man, that's fucking telling. Of how that, and yeah. how young he was when he became the the toast of the town. Well, I, the Hollywood elite, elites, you know, after you know sacrificing several children and drinking their adrenochrome, decided that he would be the sacrifice to be spared and used to bring in a real energy for the lizard people that secretly run I the government. Th- I th- I have a. I mean, you're right. You're 100% right. But what I think what happened was is that there is a finite amount of adrenochrome in a body. And over time, um, the – I don't know what you would call them. The uh, corporate lizard elite sucked it from him and and he, he became uh, Michael Jackson uh, light. Okay, we're going to move on for this gets really extra dark. When you, when you get to Michael Jackson in conversation, you know it's time to change the subject. Uh, including a kid into the story was a risk because, let's just be honest, most child actors are terrible, and, and Corey, he's, he's great in this movie. And he had this to say about his audition. I went, I did my audition, and then at the end of it, I remember my mom telling me, like, okay, they really liked you a lot, but they have some concerns. And I said, what are their concerns? She said, well, they just think you're too small, and you're not very believable as a little tiny kid who's going to pick up a machete and whack the hell out of this six-foot-five bad guy. I went, give me the machete. Let's give it a shot. And they killed a homeless person. Yeah, and they did one hundred percent, and they and they harvested his adrenochrome. <laughs> it's not as pure as child. They gave it to like the you know the lower echelon lizard well, lords. I mean, that's that's well, no, he drank the adrenochrome, and that's that's how oh. he was, and that's how he kept going until like uh, blow was it blowout where Nicole Eggert's naked. Yes, at that, at that point, like no one wanted. No one wanted what Corey Feldman had to offer, but Corey Haynes still had some gas in the tank. Hey, I got to pump the brakes right there. The second Lost Boy sequel is a good movie. You have to get through. It's a continuation of the first sequel. Part three is good. You have to watch part two, though, and that ruins it. It negates it. But anyway. Good, good in comparison to, to the second one. It's good in I, comparison to any direct-to-DVD legacy sequel. It can hang up there with any direct-to-DVD legacy sequel out there. Well, except Puppet Master Littlest Reich with uh, Thomas. That had a limited release. That though. was fucking amazing. 
That was didn't great. Have a limited run. Okay. It anyway, did. we're off the subject again. I'm going to do half a shot to Corey. Do half a shot to Corey, and I'm, I'll talk a little bit more about him while you're doing that. And the character of Tommy Jarvis is much more in much more of an involved character than most children who would be able to pull off the things that he does in this film. There's a lot of subtext with his character because of like his parents separating and he's not blatant, but there there's definitely an addition to the character that is just sort of lurking below the surface. The first of which is that whether you realize it or not, um, because of the, the expressly told dialogue, but Corey has taken like Corey, the character of Tommy has taken on basically a fraternal role in this family. He's he's filling in for what a lot of the father's duties would be. Uh, Tr- he and Trish have car problems. He's fixing the car. Um, he he does a lot of. Uh, he's getting bossed around and hidden pecked by naggy broads, just like a dad would. Yes, exactly. I live in they, a house of all women. Help they, me. They've completely broke his spirit, <laughs> just all like he, a dad. All he wants to do is play his video game and see some titties, and they're always trying to stop it. <laughs> and the other thing is that he he's obviously very smart. Um, he has computer knowledge, and like eighty four, like I mean, a kid that age probably not going to be like computer savvy. They show him to be uh, very talented in terms of, like making these masks, which is an interesting thing of the story that never really quite goes anywhere. Has a payoff. Like I said, he shaves his head. The mask does if he'd have, like whip together something real quick, which obviously Tom Savini would be like, "That shit isn't realistic. That's not going in the movie. Fuck you." Well, you brought we'll up, kill him with a microwave in the head. You brought you brought up <laughs> yeah. something interesting right there with with Tom Savini. And there has been a long-standing rumor, or more... Uh, Wish? What's the word I'm looking for? More of a long-standing wives' tale that Tommy is based off of Tom Savini. Uh, whether or not they want to agree that he is, uh, there is certainly a parallel to be drawn there. Because they've said time and time again that it was not intentional, but I don't know how you... How you name a character Tommy, Tommy and have him be this way without drawing that conclusion? I mean, yeah, but then again, at the time, it was also building up to just maybe not mainstream societal, but horror fan society where, like, the special effects guys were the fucking rock stars. Yeah, Tommy could be a generic name they threw on, and just having that. Oh, this kid likes doing special effects. He's just like you guys. You're cool. And maybe not intentionally, but more subconsciously influenced. Not an, an actual, like, this is Tom Savini, and we're going to get Tom Savini to do the movie. This is intentional. You know, just kind of a happy accident. That's I, how I look at it. I just, I can't. I, you're, you might be right. You might be right. And according to everyone involved, you are right. But there's a part of me that thinks, eh, they, I think they... I think that this is retroactive continuity. I think one, <laughs> once he signed aboard, I think they were like, "Okay, let's let's make this." We're gonna kid. name. We're gonna rename Billy in the script real quick. <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't be the first time yeah. that some arbitrary decision was made just for you know the decisions of inside joke or you know homage. Um, I have. I met Corey. He's a really friendly guy. Uh, that being said, I, I, I can 
definitely see him getting on the nerves of people uh, because he can be really intense. Uh, Corey got along with pretty much everybody on this except on the set except for Ted White. Yeah, I knew this story. Corey had this to say: the only person I didn't get along with or afraid of was Ted White. Ted was very respectful when it came to the fact that I was a kid and he knew to keep his boundaries, but at the same time, I don't think he was really very aware of how to deal with children. Ted has not been coy about how he dis- much he disliked Corey. Mean little devil. I couldn't stand him. I wanted to kill him desperately. There were times that Corey got close to me and it took all my reserves, not just reach out, grab him, and give him a good spanking. (laughs) Just a cantankerous old man. Their onset feud would come to a head during the scene near the end where Jason reaches through the broken window to pull Tommy out of the house. White goes to act out his frustration just to, you know, he cranks it to 11. They had worked out the timing when White would grab Feldman beforehand, but during the filming, White waited a couple of beats extra to the point where Feldman assumed that the stunt had gone wrong. Just as he let his guard down, White grabbed him, and you can see the moment. Yeah. It is, that is not acting. This is a child fearing for his life. I... I think this is probably one of the most authentic reactions in a in a horror film, probably since we've talked about The Exorcist, where guns uh, were shot, shooting guns, backs and- broken. <laughs> um, what do you think about a stuntman, a much older stuntman? Yeah, the man used to stunt double for John Wayne. What do you think about him? sort of fucking with this kid. Fucking was alright, and he never hurt him. He didn't know his boundaries. He's a cantankerous old man with a hatred of youth. You can see that in the interview. I've seen it. Like the when he talks about hating on Corey, there's such just true spy nobody can hate a kid that much. They've only been around for a couple of weeks. You gotta live with them and know them. And just have to deal with them day in and day out being teenage girls just, you know, you stupid I'm just playing. But, uh, but let's put things into perspective. Corey was Corey, an extra outspoken, loud kid on a movie set. Who had, Child stars are not known for being quiet and reserved. And he did not have any other people his age to sort of filter that stuff through. So you have teenagers and then you have and a full-fledged been adult for as long as some yeah. of these people have been alive and it, it's it's interesting and hilarious sort of in retrospect but i don't know like in in modern filmmaking this probably would not fly man yeah. uh, the character of tommy jarvis would persist throughout the next couple of entries and as important as he is it's sometimes easy to forget that he's not really the focus of this movie that honor would be given to the actress playing his sister and the final chapter's final girl, that being Kimberly Beck as Trish Jarvis. Uh, she's had a very successful career going in you know, television. Uh, she was Kim Schuster on Peyton Place, Diane Porter on Rich Man, Poor Man Book 2, which I, 
I remember vividly uh, my aunts and, and yes. everything just being uh, hot and bothered to to no end for a story about um, a rich man and the poor yeah, man. Yeah, this is banging some slut. <laughs> uh, Claire Prentice on Dynasty, which is another you know just a cornerstone 1980s thing. Yeah. Uh, big ass shoulder pads, sequence dresses. It's 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 80s as 80s can be. But as a child, she worked with Alfred Hitchcock on the film Marnie. Now, before we move on, we have to expound upon that tidbit a little more. We're, we're both Hitchcock fans. And we know how demanding he could be of his actors. Hitchcock has been quoted over the years as referring to actors as nothing more than mannequins to be manipulated. But he was especially brutal in his disdain for child actors, referring to them as stupid waste. God. That being, Such a good man. That being said... I don't have specific proof that Hitchcock was especially hard or unkind to Kimberly on the set of Marnie, but from the interviews that I've read from her, she seems to have somewhat of a chip on her shoulder when it comes to uh, somewhat of her early Hollywood experiences. However, from being a former child actor, it did give her more of an understanding of how to deal with child actors on set by de facto. Um, She kind of became the advocate and the caretaker for Corey Feldman. Uh, She had this to say, I was a child actor, so I had a lot in common with him. It's a hard thing. You miss a lot of your childhood. The first day was actually Halloween, and I took him trick-or-treating. Very sweet. Oh, they do have a good brother-sister vibe at certain scenes in the movie. Not always. When it kind of gets... Later on in the movie, you kind of forget it's not important that they're brother and sister, but in their interaction, their family interactions. With, with the mom. When the mom and the sisters are tickling him yeah, and other little they, things. Like they give him the Jarvis sandwich. And like, yeah, yeah there's, there's just nice moments. nice little moments. Nice moments that humanize the characters and, and make you care Want about them. them. to see them murdered by a giant <laughs> hockey mask killer. Exactly. Um, Corey has been very favorable when talking about Kimberly. Uh, going as far to say, I remember her doing a lot of looking after me, making sure I was taken care of. She was kind of the person that I could probably relate to the most. If I had more people like her in my life back in the 80s guiding me, I might not have had the troubles I had. So it's her fault she was a, he got addicted to heroin, I agree. Exactly. <laughs> now, Corey's downfall in Spiral and everything has been just extensively chronicled, uh, so we won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but do you think that there should be more regulations when it comes to child oh, absolutely, acting? and there probably kind of, probably kind of is now... You know, it was the run-and-gun deregulation 80s, you know, still like a big studio system. We do what we want. And I'd say, yeah, absolutely. And just as a side note, it was Mama Fratelli on the set of Goonies that gave Corey his first hit of heroin. Like, she shot him up. His first blowjob, too. Well, yeah. <laughs> Crack him teeth out. That's going to give you a sloth. Uh, Mama! <laughs> I made wet! (laughs) Oh, God! It's sticky wet. (laughs) My pee-pee's white. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. Horrible, horrible. I love that movie. It's part of my child. Anyway, I digress. Baby goose! (laughs) There should be a lot, and I get on a set of... And none of these were teenagers. They're all at youngest, early 20s. You have no other youth there. You know, you got a you know an adult playing your sister. You got a, another adult playing your mom. You got adults on the set bossing you around. I get that. Yeah, it's absolutely a horror. Well, what do you think about there being 
maybe like a like when you have a film set, there are set roles. Like you have your actors, you have your grips, you have you know your yeah. There editors. should absolutely be like a, a wrang, not a kid wrangler, but like and a I, and I'm advocate. Sure, and like I, she and said. I'm sure that there's something like that exists. But what do you think about this being a position that's almost exclusively filled by former child stars? That'd be good because they understand the the, the that- nature of the beast. It'd give that one poor guy who, who got his tongue frozen in Christmas Story, who does the non-porn roles Peter horns, give him something to do. Well, Peter Billingsley, um, we've we've uh, he's still alive. Oh, okay. He's still alive, and we've we've right here. There's your career path. Um, you can tell all the stories of doing blow with Richard uh, Pryor on the set of the toy. That's Scotty Schwartz. That's who I'm talking about. Who got his tongue stuck? Is that? I, I'm yeah, talking about the Peter, same kid. I'm talking about Peter Billingsley. No, I'm talking about because I couldn't think of the toy, and now the, the kid from the toy who was in a bunch of movies back in the is day is Scotty Schwartz in? He did Scotty. He's the kid that gets his tongue t- tongue stuck. I can't remember. He's a bit part. He's not a major role. I was thinking it was the it was the main character Ralphie no, that did that. No, he might have, but no, no, it wasn't. It was definitely the guy. Who- I'm not doubting you. Yeah, I, I'll, that was on 24 hours a day. I, I have gone out of my way to erase his existence from my memory. Well, he Love also you, Bob did Scotty's X-rated adventure because he did do a porn once. Yeah, good for but him. But mostly he's in the non-porn. He's the husband that goes to work with the slut wife getting railed. You know. But he could he could mentor young children. Actually, if, no, if I, I don't made, want him anywhere around <laughs> kids now. I, I take it all back. You're wrong. If I, if I made my living doing... Non-pornographic scenes in porn movies—that seems like a like a decent life. It's probably not as much fun. It's probably not a lot of money, and the smells on set are probably awful. I mean, really? Like, I mean, porn how, how long? How long? Can, there can't be. You gape out an asshole for so long; it's going to smell like asshole. Yeah, but you're not there for that. You're you're in the like they're using I, the same room. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, you're correct. They probably shoot this stuff out of sequence. So they probably bring him in after after the uh, the uh, bunghole stretching scene. Yeah, I, I, mean, po- gotta, I apologize. I've got to have him walk in on the anal gaping and get cucked. I just love that word, <laughs> cuck. Anyway, Kimberly's love for Corey, unfortunately, it hasn't translated to the film itself. Um, she had this to say. I had never seen any of the Friday films, and I didn't want to see any of them. I still have never seen any of them. I just don't like that kind of genre at all. And this was not even a B movie. It was really just a C movie. You shut your whore mouth, Okay. Bitch. How many former actors of the Friday the 13th series, or really just slasher movies in general, how many of them do you think sort of feel the exact same way? Probably a sad number. Like, there's probably a bunch doing the like the convention circuit, making a decent middle class living, you know, selling autographs that like it or grew to like it. But there's probably a bunch of people that are like, oh well, it was this or you know, a donkey show in Tijuana. So I did Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. I I obviously don't agree with her. But I'm going to say this just for the obvious. I think it's refreshing that she's honest about it because there have been so many of these former actors in the Friday series and Nightmare and on, you know, down the line that just fucking dog talk it. But then when they realize that they can go to conventions and make a bunch of money, all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, I loved it from the very beginning. That's true. And that seems disingenuous. So 
I have no problem with her yeah, know, thinking, thinking yeah. this way. I, and her being honest about it just makes me respect the fact that she's wrong. But I can well, I can accept that. Of course, she's, she is. She's a woman. I can, she, I can accept <laughs> that she's wrong. It's not about a sandwich. Yeah, you know. I I agree. Well, Love you, honey. Friday Thirteenth um, is you know it's like a good sandwich, and uh, maybe if she had put more time into into crafting a, a better performance, uh, we would look upon it in the same way you do a a, a wonderfully crafted BLT. In all sincerity, yeah. I think I think she's actually pretty good in the movie. Yeah, she's all right. Um, she wouldn't be in like my top. Final Girls. Well, I was actually going to ask you, like, where do you where do you rank her in terms of Final Girls? Probably five or you know, some, some dead in the middle. I I and this is not a knock on her ability. It's, knock, it's, it's that I I feel like somewhat, and I, we'll just bring this into our next talking point. Do you think that she gets overshadowed? Yeah, because there's yeah the Jason Hunter guy. Uh, you have her awesome little brother. You have teenagers who aren't just brought up, killed immediately. You get into their stories. You get invested. She's she, just a final girl because she's dragging her little brother in the last. She's few more. She's more important to the story in terms of keeping the story going. But ultimately, uh, she's needs she, a man to save her. She's she, not a final girl. He's not even a man yet. Oh, he grew his he every whack. He's he had pubes. He had not been blown by Mama Fratelli <laughs> and given his first bump yet. Okay. Well, the character of Tommy Jarvis achieved completion and pubic hairs in those whacks. The character in universe. Okay. Well, I I haven't heard that directly from the mouth of writer it's Barney Cohen, but I'm going to go in on a limb and say that you're 100 percent correct. <laughs> Definitely Sa- intended. 100. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's head cannon now. Like that's just that's it's not no, it's not even head cannon. It's just <laughs> cannon. cannon. It's just cannon. That's why he looks at his sister in the original cut of the ending. You know, when they're hugging and he pops up because he's like, oh shit, I've got a boner. I don't want my sister to feel my boner, but I'm around titties, and I'm such a man now. I get boners around titties. It's true. It's true. That's why he's all full of anger in part five. <laughs> we'll talk more about we'll talk more about Tommy when we get uh, to yes. our, our murder spree coming up. Uh, Tommy and Trish add a lot of heart to the final chapter, but waiting in the wings to wreak havoc, we have what many fans consider to be the scariest of all the men behind the mask. We have Ted White as Jason. Hey, get ready for this. This is going to be a long rundown. Sansa Iwo Jima, Tron, Romancing the Stone, Starman, Major League. Uh, Ted has several acting roles across his career, um, aside from Jason, but his primary function in Hollywood was that as a stuntman, which he did stunts for Creature from the Black Lagoon, Rio Bravo, The Misfits, Planet of the Apes, Soylent Green, Rollerball, um, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, 1941 with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. Gone in 60 seconds. The original one, not the not the Nick, Nick Cage, Cage movie. Too Fast, Too Furious, Tokyo Drift. This motherfucker <laughs> is... He's in his 90s now. And this dude, you know, I mean, that's probably, what, 15 years ago? Yeah. 10, 10, 15 years ago. And he, he was still, still doing... It was in, definitely at least 30 plus years from Friday the 13th Part 4. And 
And he worked 30 years before then. He's the car. Jesus Christ. Yeah. He's the car that Southern dude drives. It's just like, you know too much about this movie and I'm getting offended. It's it's like it's like Flintstone's logic. Like, the car didn't have a motor in it. They just stuck his feet out of it. And he, he just, just kicked, his, kicked his feet and just ran that thing, you know, 90 miles uh. down the road. So everybody has their favorite incarnation of Jason or Jason actor, but generally the short list has Ted White either at the top or near the top. So I have this broke down into two categories because I think that's the only way we can. Yeah, you can't come up with a definitive. Is Ted White the best Jason in terms of being scary? Yes. I'm going to say yes, because there's the, the running scenes, and he does more running in three, I know. But there's the, the, the brutal physicality of it. I love Kane Hodder. Kane Hodder has the great... Kane Hodder has the best standing, menacing Jason Poe. Like, the, the deep breathing. He just looks at you. He's going to kill. But acted like the, the actions throughout the, the film, Ted White's fucking br- force of fucking nature. Do you know who Kane Hodder's favorite Jason is? Probably Ted White. It's, it's Ted it White. Be, yeah. And he has been very adamant that he took a lot of what Ted White did because, in his opinion, he thought Ted White was the scariest Jason. And he is both my favorite Jason and I believe he is the scariest Jason. But the other element of Jason we have to talk about is aesthetic. And this is one that I think more people are split on because most people would argue that Kane Hodder's look in part seven is the definitive Jason. And then you have the other people who say part three, because that's the, that's the initial vision looks better of like the character where they really slip and fall. And I love Tom Savini is the demasking a does not look like, the face and part that's a continuation. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Tom Savini. Okay, and secondly, like mask on for Jason, it's a, it's a good look, especially in the rain, the hunky figure, the look. It's fine. It doesn't stand out as much as like Part Six's zombie Jason walking, you know, the, the like the Terminator walk, or Kane Hodder's huffing and puffing. And definitely the face in part three, the especially the little right face in the window at the dream sequence. Or scratching at the window. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I mean, it's a fine look, but no. Looks wise, he's not, no. Kane Hodder. I, Kane I, Hodder's I, my dreamboat. I both, I both agree and disagree because I think it's all dependent on what you're wanting out of your Jason because they're essentially two different characters. Like the, Part seven, Jason is this undead killing machine, and part same thing with six. And then this is this is sort of the culmination. This is the vice, the final incarnation of okay. a live Jason. Between the three living Jasons, mask on, part four is the peak. Mask off, it's part three. That's my opinion. I'm. And I, now I'll leave that up for argument. I, I can. I. I can concede to that. I can concede yeah. to that. I, I I will state for uh, for now until Kingdom Come that uh, if not for uh, Kane Hodder, the 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 role of Jason, I don't think would ever have been something that people sought out to yeah, do. It's true. And um, but I, I give credit where credit is due because Ted White, despite not wanting to do the role, which we're about to talk about, um, brought a lot to it. Um, do you think the final chapter would have worked if Richard Brooker 
had returned from part three, do you think that like the, the way he played Jason would have been applicable for this this no, version? That was funky disco Jason. <laughs> that was cusp of the eight. Cut, you know, the seventies are over, but not really. Uh, the 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 actually, I'd say it'd be hard to say because a lot of the color scans. The part three is brighter. Obviously, it's you know filmed in three D, so they couldn't be that dark. That's it's just an aesthetic quality. And there, there's just that scene where he's like looking for bitch in the barn, just busting shit up in three. That is great. I mean, it's very physical. But I still think that like Ted White ekes it out. Ted White's a superior choice. I, 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 I think it just in terms of the moment it would have worked, but in terms of like it elevating, you know, sort yeah, of the, the next fine. The, the next evolution of what we understand as the Jason character. I think this was the the proper direction to go in. Um, at 58, Ted is the oldest actor to play Jason to date. Director Joseph Zito had this to say about the reasons for casting Ted as Jason. I wanted to go with a really experienced Hollywood stuntman, and Ted White had doubled famous actors all his career. Hollywood actors. He had a scene of dramatic timing that other Jasons maybe didn't think about in the same way because they didn't have 40 years of experience before being in front of a uh, camera. Do you think Ted's age gives him an edge in the role of Jason as opposed to, like, some of the other guys? For a, a lot of the physical, hulking, looking, timing, yeah. Yeah, it does. Like, now, again, like, it's obviously breakaway doors and stuff he's busting through when he's doing that. They could, that could be fakes to the ages and the detriment. I, I don't think he could have sold the farmhouse fuck-up scene that the guy from Part 3 did, you know, as well at that age. You know, with a lot more use of fake props, but you can tell there they just let him in a barn and said, "Fuck it up." <laughs> it's fuck it three, up. Though, they, they didn't have the budget to fake the props and the stuff that Ted White's busted. So yeah, I think it's an absolute advantage. I think, and this Jason being a curmudgeonly old man hates all the youths, not just the child, but all the youths he gets to kill. And that hatred and contempt him, for people with their life ahead of them translates. His being dramatically older than everybody on set and particularly as we covered with his relationship with Corey I really do think that he put the real scenario of Fuck his contempt I want into to kick the teenagers with with the, with their heavy metals and and jazz cigarettes I'll kill them all he's a, he's he's a lot more intentful in his movements yes than than Richard Brooker Richard Brooker has what I call the Bill Murray stance where <laughs> I'll find myself, and this is just my love of Ghostbusters, I'll be out in public, and if I'm not, like, thinking about it, but then I start to think about it, I'm like, man, I'm moving like Bill Murray. <laughs> or it's just like, kind of like you're walking in somewhat of a apathetic, slumped back way. And there are moments, especially when, in part three, where Richard Brooker has just given Vera the harpoon to the eye, and he throws the fucking... <laughs> <laughs> he throws the fucking gun to the side and just kind of strolls off. I'm like, that's exactly how Bill Murray would have done it. Yeah, I could say that. Um, so uh, some people like that, but I think that the way that Ted White plays it is a lot more like, no, fuck you. I'm pissed off. And Everybody's going to die. Everybody that is in my pathway is getting fucking taken care of. Um Ted was uneasy with taking on the role of Jason. He had this to say about accepting the role. I actually turned it down to begin with, and later on I did accept it. After I accepted it, I did go down and rent the uh, two of the Jasons, and I watched Jason it's himself. 
how he moved and so forth. I felt like I'd like to play him a little different. I'd like for him to move a little different. I didn't want that slow motion routine anymore. And I thought, if this is the final chapter, then that's the way I'd like to take it out. Ted has one of my favorite quotes as to why he took on the role of Jason, even though he didn't want it. He had this to say, I did it for the Bucks. So my question to you is, because he's so dejected from the role and is completely taking it on for financial reasons, do you think that he brought more to it because he's not concerned about what came before him? I think he he thinks it's the last one, so he doesn't care. He did go watch the seagulls. I think what it is, like, yeah, I think you're right, yes, but I don't think that's the primary factor of what did it. He's a Hollywood pro. He's like, I'm. T- he's definitely a boomer. Greatest, actually, by then, probably greatest generation. But, you know, he's like, I'm taking money for this. I'm going to do it seriously. I'm going to give it my all. But I don't give a fuck about Jason. Fuck these kids. That's that's what that was his statement on the fucking kids. Fair, fair, fair enough. He probably said frick those kids or dog. <laughs> <laughs> he threw up gang signs. He was, it was, it was oh, real yeah. weird. He was he was big in the Latin kings. <laughs> that's, that's that you may not know that. Um, should Ted have continued on as Jason in sub- subsequent films? Definitely not Zombie Jason, and thankfully not Ambulance Driver Jason. See, here's the thing. If if this if the, if there had been a movie like after this with another alive Jason, yeah. it, it would have worked. But I, I think because the next movie it's not really him, and then in part six it's a a completely different character. It's 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 unfortunate that we never got to see him in the role again because he was offered the roles, but he turned them down because obvious reasons. But in subsequent years, he said, you know, it was a mistake. I should have taken those roles because I could have been playing Jason all that time. And, you know, each movie making, you know, 50% increase on what I made on the last one. Yeah. Uh, Whether Ted would have fit as Jason in a new beginning or Jason lives. That's I had for me, it's not even up for debate. Um, But he has shown remorse for not taking the roles and, He's he's come around to Friday the Thirteenth. He does conventions now, and he still doesn't speak particularly fondly of of the movies. Still doesn't say a lot of positive things about Corey Feldman. I'll take your money, fuck face. But he has come around to the fact that people love him in the role. And for a ninety year old guy to still be doing conventions and stuff, it's that sweet bulge in that overall thing he's got packing. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, I mean... He's swinging 10 limp. Well, and because he's 90 years old, I'm assuming that it is. Unless he watched Red Scorpion to, to where... I like, mean, it's it's not like rock He's 90. Hard. It's like... It's like cartilage buildup yeah. is just keeping it solid. <laughs> and he gains no pleasure from jamming that thing in. But Ted Ted White, we salute you. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate to think that, I mean, we're... We're within a few years of him not being with us, and 
Um, he's, well, he'll he's, always be in our hearts. I, and, you know, make light of that all you <laughs> I'm not. It's really, he's I, left I, a legacy that we'll always have. I mean, I, I, I truly believe that he, he made cinematic magic, you know. With Tokyo Drift, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Where he stuck his feet out at the bottom of the car and, and, and walked that thing across Tokyo. He, he was Around the, Tokyo. He was the drift. They're, they're drifting, yeah. He was the drift in Tokyo Drift. Every great slasher villain <laughs> needs a Dr. Frankenstein behind the scenes to bring the monster truly to life and the final chapter brings back a familiar face that being tom savini all right run down dawn of the dead day of the dead maniac the burning the prowler creep show alone in the dark invasion usa texas chainsaw massacre 2 monkey shines two evil eyes and the original friday the 13th now tom's many accolades aside believe it or not he was not the first choice to be helming the final chapter for its special effects. Five-time Academy Award-winning artist Greg Canham was hired, but he had clashes with director uh, Joseph Zito, ended up dropping out of the project. Now, if you're not familiar with Greg Canham, he did the FX for The Howling, which got him the job doing uh, the werewolf effects on uh, Bark of the Moon, uh, the album cover for Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, He did Dreamscape, uh, Exorcist 3, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I mean, he's he's had a long-standing career both in B and A films. Would Greg Canham have been a better fit for this movie. No, because it sounds like, I mean, he might've made a better looking Jason mask off, but it sounds from the features you've mentioned is more monster stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not ever going to take anybody over Tom Savini unless it's like a John Carl Beekler or like, um, fuck. I just had his name in my head. There's very few that can play in his range. And for this movie, he was the first guy. Let him end it. You, you know, when we get done with this, you might, you're probably still going to have the same mindset, but it's going to bring new light to some of the decisions that were made in the film. Now, when Greg dropped out, director jo- Joseph Zito uh, reached out to Tom Savini, who had worked with him a couple of years prior on The Prowler. Greg's team had already been doing a lot of preliminary design work, so because of time constraints, he had to go with what direction they were going uh. with. And he had this to say, I actually replaced a makeup artist on the final chapter, and luckily that's what they were doing. They were redesigning the adult Jason from my makeup design on the kid, which is only logical, I would think, you know, so I was glad they were doing it, but I had nothing to do with the design. That being said... Does this change your mindset of what you were saying earlier? Actually, it's a little better knowing that he didn't, that that's not his fault. Because I'm I'm underwhelmed with Mask Off Jason in this compared to the third one. It's like if they wanted to keep continuity or do something different, I don't know. But, eh, I mean, I don't hate it. It's a great movie. It's a good look. But I'm like, I, in my opinion, I'm like, man, Tom Savini could have done better. In terms of it being sort of a progression of what he looked like, little kid Jason, I do see it. Yeah. But I still prefer Richard Brooker's unmasked yeah. hillbilly in, in part three. You know, creep rapist. Creep rapist. <laughs> when we get to part three, man, we're going to have such a fucking debate about whether or not Jason is a rapist. Do not say a word right now. People have to wait for that debate. Okay. All right. So... I'm guessing that answers uh, somewhat of the questions uh, because, you know, uh, Savini came on board, but 
he was still the the chief influence in terms of you know what Jason would become. So even though he didn't come up with the design, he still somewhat was the blueprint for the direction they went in. However, one area where Savini's fingerprints are undeniable in uh, Final Chapter is the kills, because he was pretty much given carte blanche by director Joe Zito to do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, Joseph hold on Zito, real quick. Fuck you, MPAA. Indeed. <laughs> Joseph Zito had this to say. We spent a lot of time talking about how to kill people in interesting ways, and that is the one thing you do with Savini because it's his favorite thing in the world to do is talk about how to kill things. He's well, got a ranch. He, he kidnaps homeless people and takes them to him. Yeah. Kills them in entry. I mean, it's yeah. for a movie, he so it's okay. He, he films it to get to make it as realistically as possible. And he has to kill probably 30 people before like he has like the, the, Honed the, in the footage perfect. from like yeah. every angle to make it look proper. <laughs> but yeah, he's great. Uh, we're going to talk about these kills in just a few moments. But first, we... We can't move on to the mayhem uh, before we touch base on something that didn't end up in the film. Joseph Zito had this to say about an abandoned kill. We described this elaborate thing with Tommy, the effects kid, who was also an amateur inventor. He's taken a microwave oven apart, you know, and put a reflector behind it and with uh, various things goes one to ten. On one, he melts a toy soldier. We thought, why don't at the end, he jams this thing onto Jason's head. He turns it up to 10, and this thing blows up Jason's head. So, should this have been the ending to the film? I mean, I want to say yes, because I'm sure it would have looked awesome. But Face Dragon Death by Machete was pretty awesome. And again... It kind of leaves them an out for sequels. That was, I'm sure, an issue. If you're going to do a kill, a 1988 kill in a 1984 movie, I just don't know that that's going to work. That's true. Like I said, it probably wouldn't have worked for the overall movie. I'm sure it would have looked awesome, though. I give give them credit for being somewhat forward-thinking, because that's definitely the direction that slashers were going in, and like, let's do something. That, That seems to me more like a Freddy kill. Than, yeah, a, than a Jason I can see that. Not necessarily a kill done on him, but, you know, yeah, Freddy he like, does. let's make your head look like a bagel bite. <laughs> That's it. You know. That's... I just I can't think of anything wittier. I just I just don't I just don't think killing a uh, human Jason with the microphone a microphone a microwave on his head um, would be satisfying in a cathartic kind of way. I mean, again, the actual kill we get is great and pure Savini. Now there there's a lot more detail about Savini's love and sometimes hatred for the Friday Thirteenth series. Uh, and if you would like to hear more about that, I would direct you to our archive at JuicyKruger.com to check out our original Friday the 13th episode. I actually go solo on that one. Um, packed to the brim. So if you were His no, dick was out the whole time. It was because I was here by myself. And it's I, the same house. I, if, I want to, if I want to tickle it while I'm talking, that's that's my business. This is America. This is America. <laughs> this is America. <laughs> so this is America. Now listen, we've verbally masturbated enough. Let's get to the money shot of Savini's masterwork. Let's check out the victims of the final chapter. All right, we've established Tom's blood-soaked credentials, but now we got to talk about the fruit of his labors, the victims. Number one, 
Axel, who you may remember as Fackler in Police Academy, who is played by Bruce Mailer, and Nurse Morgan, who is played by Lisa Freeman, who was Babs in Back to the Future, a literal character who, if you do not pay attention, you will forget because she's sitting at a diner like a booth. And, yeah. But she was still in. She was in it. A huge film that came out a year later. Into uh, into the morgue for midnight, uh, around midnight, they're going to have a midnight rendezvous, uh, only to have their potential lovemaking spoiled by Jason's hand falling from a gurney and sla- slapping that nurse right on her leg. This series of events sets up not only one of the greatest exchanges in slasher movie yes. history, but just film in general. So before we get down to brass tacks and this kill in the macro, we got a micro with a rant's Recreation. Ooh. All right, let me give you your your page here. Um, <clears throat> Fat Tony will be playing the role of Axel, and I will be taking on the pivotal role of Nurse Morgan. All right, you ready? Re- yeah. Are you gonna read the stage direction? You or I will. You read it. Jason hands falls on Axel and Nurse. Jesus Christ! Holy Jesus! God damn! Jesus jumping Christmas shit! Hey, hey, where are you going? I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going crazy. It's the greatest expletive expulsion in any movie ever. (laughs) (laughs) Holy Jesus, jumping Christmas Christmas shit. Barney Cohen. I don't, I I can't tell you another another line of dialogue uh, that has probably made me laugh more consistently from a slasher film. Oh, yeah. Other than other lines in this movie. Yes. He he adds a lot of levity to uh, to moments that, you know, that are... such a creep guy, setting food down on the body, watching that aerobic video. Where we're about to talk oh. about it. With, Merce, with Nurse Morgan, spooked and drier than the Sahara Desert, Axel puts Jason's seemingly dead body in the morgue drawer and proceeds to watch what I can only describe as aerobics pornography. <laughs> There's just one problem. Jason isn't dead and proceeds to take a bone saw to the neck of Axel, which puts the exclamation point on the moment by twisting Axel's head completely around with his bare hands. What do you give this kill? Okay, I'm giving it a 10 out of 10 for the whole setup, but everything. But the actual kill, although chopped to pieces, and you can tell, Agreed. is fucking brutal. I give it a nine. This is how you start a slasher Hell movie. Hell yeah, you Jason do. is resurrected at the mere suggestion that two people may indulge in premarital sin, only to wreak swift and horrible justice. You know, in all seriousness, Tom Savini performs one of the oldest tricks in the books by simply dressing the actor backwards yeah. and, you know, just turning his, head, turn his right head. It's 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 very utilitarian, but man. Especially if you've seen the uncut version of this. Oh my god, it's so effective. It's just, that's movie-making magic. It's just, it's perfect. But even in its, in its truncated version, which I think some people may think makes it scarier because it's... Kind of just brutal. It's just, just, it's quick and to the point. I, I love it. Number two, Nurse Morgan, who is fuming from her exchange with Axel, rummages around the hospital medical supply room when Jason grabs her with his left hand, slams her into the wall, and lifts her off the ground. With his right hand, he plunges a scalpel into her abdomen and slices her down. Just about to the tip of the another slit, but that's... 
I'll leave that to your imagination. What do you give this kill? I give it like a six. After after you get, I mean, it's a good, nice Jason Brutal. He's he's a monster. It's showing his physicality again. It's truncated. Six is probably generous. It probably should be a five, but I'm going to say I, six. I gave it a five. It's not a bad kill at all, but among the many great kills to come in the final chapter, it's super overshadowed. I do have to realize because you're right. It was those the mortician and the nurse. Uh, or coroner and nurse fixed a bone that brought the rage back into him and gave him that second adrenaline. The only way to survive Jason is do what the Mormons do called soaking, where you just put it in, but there's no movement. But you can have a friend like jump on the bed to provide that. It's the thrusting. And the idea, had they been, you know, because, you know, it worked, he works on like T Rex rules. If there's no movement, he can see. You know, I <laughs> I just wanted I'm, to talk I'm, about soaking. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with what you with what you said there, but there is a lot of cues in the film that like in the VHS and even some in the DVD days that I didn't notice. But seeing this movie in 1080p, you know, full clarity, uh, when they bring Jason in, you see there's a twitch when he's on yeah. the gurney. Uh, when he gets put into the um, drawer, the drawer, you get to see the breath yep. come up, and that is just—it's very obvious on the Blu-ray. And I had maybe I, noticed. I it noticed on DVD. on DVD. I never noticed on VHS. But there, there's, there's cues. There's the little little clues to let you know that he's still there. But he doesn't come fully back to life until there's some, you know, at the very least, genital to genital th- through cloth movement. If there's a cock to block, he's going. He's he's down. These these these. Is Jason the greatest cock blocker in the history of cinema? Yeah, probably. All right, I'm gonna make that into a t-shirt. He's just a fucking incel. <laughs> <laughs> he. We've established that Jason Jason is a virgin. Uh, Freddie's well, that's not. that's for the God no ooh ooh. Well, he also has a kid with an adult woman too, yeah. so that's all yeah. good. And all, and all sorts of like demon butt babies. Oh yeah. Um, this kill would actually result in some actual bloodshed. Ted White had this to say. There was a nurse that I'm supposed to strangle. When I shoved her up against the wall, she had a button on the back of her cap. And when her head hit the wall, the button penetrated her head a little bit. And she yelled out, These are the times when you back up and say, Whoa, you're not really Jason, you know. You're supposed to be making a few bucks and not hurt anybody. So, Ted White... Again, taking his frustrations <laughs> yeah. out on the youth. <laughs> okay, number three. In perhaps the most mean-spirited moment in the Friday the 13th series, if not just the final chapter, we have Bonnie Hellman uh, playing the role of hippie hitchhiker. Yeah. Our main cast drive past and do not give her a ride, which prompts her to display her fuck you sign. She plops herself back down and starts snarfing down a banana which, of course, is too phallic for Jason's liking. Nope, she had to and, die. And, she, and he stabs the hitchhiker through the back of her neck, through her throat. What do you give this kill? I give it a six. Again, it's really cool, and it did fuck me up on bananas for like a minute after the first time I saw it. I'm like, oh, where she just squeezes it. And... it it's nice little details like that yeah. that like really sell. Because, yet again, the kill is fucking slashed to pieces yes. by the MPAA but having just that shot of her gripping the banana and it 
You, you yeah, know, you see her body out. going through the death spasms, and yeah, and that's literally seeing the the end of sex right there. Like that's that's that, yeah. that's the, the the a penis uh, ejaculating and, and becoming soft. That's that's the that's, I never that, thought of that's, it like that's, that. You're right. That's Jason fucking fucking coming. That's that's the close. He can't fuck, <laughs> but he comes through penetrating people with sharp objects. Exactly. So. In slasher logic, does her fuck you sign justify her being murdered? I mean, uh, Jason is the ultimate example of slasher logic. Like, he is the one. You do anything bad at all. You're, yeah, it's foul language. You know, he's he's a child of, what, he died in 58? Uh, he would have been presumably, let's see, uh, born in 46, uh, presumably. He's definitely a baby boomer. He, yeah. he, he, he wants things clean. So, you know, he, he's trying to make the world pure for so that, you know, Jesus Christ can return again and raise the saints. He's a Mormon. And, oh, if man. If you drink coffee, that's enough to have Jason kill you. No. No. Mrs. Voorhees would never allow such an indulgence. Yeah. They're Mormon. He's wearing magic underwear under that. <laughs> <laughs> he's protecting the golden plates. That's that's, the, that's why he can't be killed. That's their, their, they're buried under... <laughs> Fucking crystal lake. Ah, we figured Get the out. the plates. I'm going to lead the people. <laughs> oh, man, good stuff. Um, so, in Slasher Logic, uh, because her sign has justified her being killed, this is where I have postulated the somewhat theory? of a theory. When our main cast does not pick her up for, for seemingly fat shaming her because that's probably yeah, the meanest thing they the do 80s. does this set up the justification for their demise oh they were rude they yell or, or yeah possibly i mean that's a good theory uh they they all still break the rules and none of the major cast dies without you know what about the one twin no they drank and smoke because there's the one twin that doesn't fuck and she still gets killed but they were still at a party yeah and he doesn't do she, a party she wanted to fuck they were listening to that devil rock and roll they we'll get to that yeah we'll get we'll get to it yeah. good stuff good stuff um number four samantha who is played by the amazingly beautiful judy aronson who you may remember from weird science decides to go skinny dipping after a lover's spat with her beau paul she swims out to the middle of the lake and climbs aboard a yellow raft jason violently arises from the water and plunges a machete through the bottom of the raft through her torso and out her back what do you give this kill? I give it a seven and a half. Again, it's up in the ante. You're you're in a different spot. I can't think of any of this. Is the first time he attacks in water in the series, isn't it? Like he's at water when he kills the bitch or the thing, but like he's. Well, I mean, not you, counting you, the jump scare in part one. You can't really argue that because that's is that happen or is it doesn't make sense that that would happen in the continuity. Well, of the film. I'm just that, saying, like it, it's again, you think you're a little bit more. It's it's again him bringing the danger in an unexpected. That's why it gets elevated to seven and a half. I gave it a seven. I'd rank this higher, but Judy's facial expressions <gasps> push this into satirical well, I mean, territory. She was almost dying. <laughs> So that's that's our next point of discussion. Um, the circumstances around this kill are 
controversial to say the least and depending on who you speak to borderline on abusive if not just flat out abusive judy had this to say about her death scene shooting my death scene was a bit of a challenge there were there were that's where the horror part came into filming for me what they did was they made a fake body there was a raft with a hole cut in it my body went through the hole it was upright in the water and here and from here up i was just leaning over it it was very very cold outside and the water was even colder it was a uh, wee hours in the morning and hours in the water it became really difficult for me there were points where i just felt like i could not go on anymore i was shivering so badly they uh, they said we have to finish. I did everything to hold back from crying, and I didn't think I was successful. It turns out that I had hypothermia, and I was it was a quick, quite I was quite sick for several days after that. Okay, so this all boils down to the decisions made by the director Joseph Zito, and there's two ways you can look at this. Anytime someone does a Nude scene, a lot of times uh, there will be what's called a closed set. If you do a closed set, you have it takes longer to shoot because you have yeah. less people on set, but it, it allows the actors or actresses to feel more comfortable because there's not 800 people crowding them. This was a closed set. Therefore, there were less crew, and it took longer to do. But because they filmed this in basically the winter of 1983, the water is so cold, and she's you know halfway submerged in water that is a good 10 degrees uh, cooler than it is outside regularly. Um, I, I feel for her, but at the same time, I I think that I don't know who's Nobody is right in this scenario, but definitely um, it's it's a it's a situation where a director is trying his best to get something done quickly, and because they're trying to do it quickly, they probably actually made the made situation it worse. Go they should have taken a quick break, heated her up, threw a blanket, start again. But you know, but I mean, but you got to think though, like they, she's hoist down in there and then the makeup artists have to go over there and they have to blend her blend into the in. it's a it's a horrible situation um, and I'm not saying that uh, that film should be that situations like this should not be accomplished in film because I think authenticity goes a long way but if this were a studio film produced by a studio and not just released by one uh, those scenes probably would have been shot on a set. It would have yeah, been a controlled yeah, environment, and the budget just didn't allow for these type of things. And because they wanted such a quick turnaround, they couldn't shoot it in spring when the water would yeah. be warm. So I, I don't it think... It sucks, but there are worse jobs and worse bad things that people have put up. You know, Amazon workers have been killed by robots crushing them in the, in the warehouses. That sucks, too. Yeah, because Amazon gave birth to Skynet. <laughs> Thanks, Bezos. No, they, they it's not Skynet anymore. They 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 soft rebooted it with that last. Oh, one. you're right. It's, it's called it's, something else. It's something else now. That's like, the only good sequel since part two, and it's the one that bombed the hardest. Yeah, it was it was the least offensive of the. Sequels. I liked it flat out. Liked it. anyway. I digress. And again, it opens with a child getting murdered. So yay, which is always great. So, do you think that? 
Little column A, little column. The devil's on, on you know, it, it was shot irresponsibly. Especially hypothermia is no joke. I mean, no, you can die like, from hypothermia. Yeah. So, I mean, it should have, safety, safety guidelines were not followed. But at the same time, there are worse. You know, go ask Vic Murrow how his onset, you know, uh, experience you went. You can't, he's dead. He's dead along with those two kids. So, you made it out. You're on. I'm sure she does the convention circuit too. Whenever she needs to buy a new couch or something, <laughs> they made they, you know twenty thirty bucks for bitch getting killed. You know, fourth victim in nightmare. You know, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. You know, I like I paid for very few. I paid for Ernie Hudson. I'm paying for uh, Joe Bob and Darcy. All hell, Joe Bob. Exactly. Con, May fourteenth. Come and see us. Touch my tip. But, uh, like, you know, Josita was wrong. She was, I'm not saying she's whiny, but, you know, whatever. Josita was overall in the wrong. He's the boss. He's in charge. I just don't think that we'll ever be able to 100% say who's right and who's wrong in this situation. I just said Josita. But <laughs> because we're not in the position of, of having an entire film rest upon our shoulders and when you're in that position of having to make a decision, it's a decision that affects everybody. Not so. Does the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in that moment, or do you, you know, risk uh, getting fired from a movie because you go over budget? Like it's. I do not start track three. This the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in this situation. Okay, fair enough. All right, on to our next kill. Number five, Clyde Hayes, who you may remember as Steven in Neon Maniacs, plays the role of Paul, the boyfriend of Samantha, who has temporarily been seduced by the allure of a sexy twin, but he decides to go find Samantha to give her some in-out, in-out. And he strips down to his boxers, because how dare how dare he be clothed, but his uh, the lady have to be naked in the We in need the more swinging meat in our horror movies, people. <laughs> He hops in, he swims towards the raft, and then he, what he anticipates to be the, you know, his scorned lover, um, he's going to seduce her with some uh, some kind words. Unfortunately, he finds her dead body. He thrashes back to the dock where he gets raised off the ground and has his dick impaled by a harpoon gun. What do you ten give Ten out of kill? ten. I mean, Jesus Christ. You, that's, you know, the man in a in a studio film. Stabbed through the dick, and it's I mean, because it's not that gory; it's more context. So it's not; it's one of the few kills that isn't. You get a second. You get a second to see him lift. It's 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 the impact, the raising, the yes. holding, and then ah, he and then folk. he dislodges the the harpoon part. It it's ten out of ten, hundred percent the worst way to die in a horror movie. Listen. We all went out there. When he went out there, he was at least half cocked. So he's ready to fuck. His junk is fully skewered. And to beat all, Jason holds him up in the air, allowing his own weight to just destroy his pain. Ugh, this, this is fucking yes. disgusting. It is bad. This is this is not a way I would wish my, my greatest enemy to, to be perished upon. I would. I have no mercy. Mercy's for the weak. I, mercy I, has no place in this dojo. I, I, <laughs> strike hard, strike fast. Um, but to one of the most memorable kills oh, in yeah. slash movie history. I, I, it, does, it does everything that 
because it's it's an impressive kill, but it's also one that makes you fear Every the villain. Every guy in the fucking theater or watching it still feels that like tingling phantom pain at the base of your balls watching yeah, it. Yeah, it's you get it, to, it's like if you put a live wire in your dick hole. That's that's the feeling. That's the feeling right there. Number six, we have unhappy that her twin sister Tina is getting plowed by Crispin Glover. Terry decides to leave the house on her bicycle, but is speared off screen by Jason as lightning flashes and casts her shadow of the murder on the house. Jason flings Terry's dead body into the wall of the house, and that's that. What do you give this kill? It's a four. I'm only giving it that high because I like the atmosphere. I love rainy scenes in a horror movie. It's not that great. You know, again, it's off screen. You get a second of the body smashing, and it's a waste of good poon. Uh, that that <laughs> I will agree with you with, but I, I ranked it very high. I gave it a nine out of ten. Jesus. Uh, this, this kill could have been cool to have actually seen, but I think the less is a more approach with this actually serves the movie better. Um, It elevates this to one of the more memorable kills in the film for me, because it goes back to just the overall movie making of the film. Like, this is... Like, they do things like this in later sequels like in part 8 I know I keep bringing part 8 but there there is a there's a shadow of uh, Jason getting uh, killing the guy in the sewer and like yeah. and that's shot so flat like there's nothing there's nothing interesting about that but just the way that this has it has that that rainy stormy atmosphere to it and it it it, it goes on through the course there's a setup there's a build up and then there's the payoff I, I think it, it does everything a kill I should I think do. I would have rated it high actually had there not been the body shoved against and it been more like a off-screen corpse fight or you know third act corpse you know when he does arts and decorations with the bodies like he always does you see the shadow the lightning mask stab cut to black and then like later on she's yeah, running you, outside you know, that's that's a fair assessment um and then you know you could have uh had her body naked. She yeah. had Sam Teddy's one more time at least. I'm not a necro, you know, a necrophiliac, but it's all acting all right. in my life's titties. All right. Number seven, we have Mrs. Jarvis, who is played by Joan Freeman, arrives back home from her nightly run in the pitch dark woods while it's raining. And constant drying off. As much uh. as she's constantly drying in this movie, why she goes running in the rain kills me. Anyway, she gets killed off screen. Yeah, the no. I gave this a 4 out of 10. There's some decent suspense leading up to the non-moment, but whereas the previous kill like creatively showed little with big results, this shows nothing. It gets and- nothing from me. Like Literally, it's a zero because it's one of the most frustrating things because for years in my head, I always thought, okay, well, there's this or that. My brain tried to fill in at least something. And there's really just nothing. Yeah, It's uh, a surprise look. This results in my apathy. But we do have to talk about uh, why this scene was truncated and you don't see her kill. And that's because there was going to be an alternate ending. Oh, yeah. Um, So... Do you did you watch this all? Yes, I've, I've seen the. Do you want to talk about it just uh, just briefly? Set the bat. Okay, to make sure I'm. You the, describe the, it. The bathtub. The, okay, the bathtub. The daughter coming in. The doesn't the body. I didn't watch this recently. I've just seen it before. Doesn't the mom come out of the water? She the basically the at the end. You know, Jason has been dispatched, and uh, they're sort of like going through the wreckage. And Trish goes upstairs, and she finds her mother's body oh, yeah. submerged in the bathtub. And she comes up, and she's wearing these uh, cataract-like whiteout 
uh, uh, lenses. Lenses, and it's it's sort of uh, plays both as like a, a jump Ending. scare, but also as sort of like a a, a really melancholic sort of moment where it's like you know we survived, but at what cost? Should this have been included in the movie? No, they should have had a kill. Had to kill. Had the kid run across. You don't. You don't give the. I mean, you give, you can give like a fake jump scare, or like, ooh, maybe this is gonna happen next time. You don't be like, hey, kid, your mom's dead. Here's her corpse <laughs> at the end of an '80s slasher movie. I think this on it would have been a good dream sequence if that had been like if she woke up from that in the hospital. Because they all kind of have dumb dream sequences at the end. They do, and you probably could have edited it to make it yeah. like that. It has the feel of it. I think that like on in the script, like the way this was written, it probably Made it probably sense. sounded like a great idea. Like if you were if this were a book, that probably would be satisfying yeah. in terms of just the way that it's plotted out and described. But in practice of a film, I think it just it you needed sort of it to just end and then cut. Unless they had Jason, what they should have done is have Jason grab her, take her to a 20-minute drowning scene. He turns on the water. <laughs> he's holding her there by the throat while she's fighting while he's just waiting. He's he's on the toilet. He checks to make sure it's warm. You know, he's nice. He he, he Yeah, he takes a shit. It, yeah. And, and then he holds her underwater for seven uninterrupted minutes. Only the first two were there fighting. They could have rigged up an oxygen tank for two minutes of fighting and five solid minutes of him unmoving, staring into the tub, holding her body under. And then he leaves. But then he gets a towel and dries his hand to tie it back to the mom always drawing. Barney Cohen, Joe Zito, you're cowards. <laughs> this is what cinema looks like. <laughs> you, you, you have. We need Lars von Trier to do the next one. Oh my God! There'd be a lot more male nudity in. in the, hey the, man, we get swinging meat. <laughs> uh, one person who believes the alternate ending should have been left intact is Kimberly Beck. She had this to say about the ending: "My best scene in the entire film was cut out. It was uh, where." I find my mother and she's dead. The producers and the director decided that this scene was too offensive. Now, I will say that her acting of finding her mother is probably yeah, the best thing she does in the movie. I but I, I think it's a bad ending. It's I, I don't a, think it's bad. I think it does it it stops the flow at that moment because you've you've seen something so Traumatic, and then to time jump to where it's it's daylight out, and then see that, and then have the extra scenes in the hospital. It just doesn't it doesn't connect in yeah. in a in a way that that you know that makes you. It feels like an ending on top of an ending. It's it's a really good example of the proper use of editing and removing scenes that might be great, but like you know, don't belong in the movie. You're you're right. Like the whole scene behind Dan Aykroyd's ghost BJ. Great scene. I'm glad it's not in the movie. I'm glad. I'm glad. It, we interrupted everything. I'm glad. I just wanted an out of context dream ghost BJ. Made a lot better sense in the movie. Well, I think there were, yet again, Ivan Reitman, rest in peace, coward for not showing it. <laughs> <laughs> to completion. A- ectoplasm. Again, Lars if von a, Trier if would a, have shown it. If a ghost in jest. Ectoplasm. That's if, how if, reincarnation if, happens. If a, if a ghost who is ectoplasm in jest. Semen, it does it is it reborn corporeally? 
Yes. Yes. We'll move That's on. Fact. Yeah. Number eight, Crispin Glover. Now, <laughs> you all know who Crispin Glover Fuck is. Yeah. He's the lovable goof Jimbo. Go on YouTube and watch his David Letterman LSD interview. <laughs> yes. Just um, type Crispin Glover, David Letterman. It'll be the first one that comes up. Yes, and um, then watch uh, his return to the show where he just uh, doesn't even explain why it happened. <laughs> it's good stuff. Good stuff. Um, he He gets to gloat. Because he has finally a sexual con- conquest with Tina, and he goes down to get a bottle of wine, but he's unable to find the goddamn corkscrew. <laughs> well, Jason, being the helpful friend <laughs> that he is, it. he plunges the corkscrew into Jimbo's hand and delivers a meat cleaver to his face. What do you give this ten kill? Out of ten. It's just like the great comedic timing of it. Hey, Terry, where's the corkscrew? Wham! And again, I think this is one instance. I mean, yeah, it looks cool unedited, but the truncated, you just see like the the death quiver and the blood start to come. I liked it. I love it. Now, I the the re, the only reason this I feel bad even docking this points. I gave it a nine out of ten. The reason I give this a nine out of ten rather than a ten is because the next time you watch this movie, watch these next two kills back to back. And and explain to me the geography because you can tell this is a point where the editing the editor made something into a scene and played it out of order because there's no basically Jason is upstairs and downstairs at the very same time and in the kitchen twice. <laughs> and I can overlook this somewhat. Oh my god, nerd alert. The ki- the kill makes me have to overlook it. Uh, nine out of ten. But we got to talk about something that happens previous to this. Um, Crispin Glover, a fucking maniac, a year away from achieving, uh, you know, world status, you know, George McFly and oh, Back yeah. to the Future. But he has probably the first gif I can ever remember seeing is from him in this movie. That being... The Crispin Glover dance. The sexy dance is all I call it. So, in this movie, uh, in the the version of the film that has been released, you hear him dancing to this band called Lion. It's called it's a song called Love is a Lie. Do you know what they were dancing to actually uh, on Back set? in Black, wasn't it? ACDC's Back in Black. And if you sync this up... It still doesn't even... I mean, it's good. It does sync up rhythmically but the dance still makes no sense no and evidently this was a dance that he would do like in clubs and stuff because he it's the 80s he, he he's just, he, he New was, York he was raised by weird hippie people and he just had a free spirit and he just was not aware that he looked ridiculous and because he was unaware it he kind danced of, like no one was watching he yes he 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 makes that moment, even though like it's played to be so dorky, you can't help but yeah, love. It's charming. You yes. love. You love him. I don't think I can't think of the last time I've used "charming" as legitimately, unironically in a sentence in forever. But like, it's a charming scene. I that's what got him that pussy. He 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 literally gyrated. Her fucking panties off exactly with uh, love. Love is a lie by by lying. Oh my god! It, and supposedly the actors were given a lot of leeway on about fleshing their characters out, uh, both Lawrence Monson and um, 
Chris McGlover, you know, were given these opportunities. And uh, Lawrence had this to say about improvising with Crispin. Crispin and I would actually work really hard on our characters and the relationship that we both had. We both love improv. That stuff in the back of the van where we're driving and I'm typing on the beer cans and the dead fuck lines, Crispin and I made all that up. Genius. I mean, it's it's the best non-horror scene of the entire movie. The banter between Lawrence and Crispin is one of the highlights of the movie. Because of this, we're going to have to double dip. And for the Whoa! first time in the history of this podcast, the Rants from the Black Lodge, we're going to have another Rants recreation. My pussy just got wet. All right. Tony is going to be portraying the role of Ted, and I will be reading for Jimbo. All right. All righty. You broke up with B.J. Betty? Uh, so to speak. And uh, would, you, would you lay off her? Uh, she's all right. I'll say she's all right. That girl wanted to be treated right. You should have treated her right. I, I did. I treated her right. I treated her right. That's what's driving me so crazy. I mean, first she would tell me to call because she uh, she had something uh, else she needed to do. Then she wouldn't even take my calls. I mean, uh, can you figure that? What, what the fuck happened? Let me put it into the old computer. No, Ted, I'm serious. Hey, the computer don't lie. Let's see. Type, type, type. What? It, it says it says you're a dead fuck. What? Well, a dead fuck? A lousy lay, you know, a limp dick. Oh, don't don't hold back on me. Give it, give it, doc. Give it to me straight. I did not say it. The computer did. Yeah. Well, there is no computer. Aha! And there's no Betty either. And I'm a dead fuck. Like I said, the computer don't lie. God, I'm horny. That's fucking genius. Like that's that's that is cinema at its best. Fuck you, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. Fuck you, Marlon Brando and The Godfather. That's acting. Yeah, that's that's this is the the height of interpersonal <laughs> ridiculous. It sounds like a real conversation real teenagers would have. And I think that like the the being allowed to just sort of flesh their characters out. I mean, they they were done a pretty good uh, in terms of the script, uh, balancing that many characters. You're never going to get, like, really, really fleshed out characters. Yeah. But just having these little humane moments. And it's not mean-spirited what he's saying. He's no, just he's razzing his buddy. Balls. He's just razzing his buddy. I've, I've always been upset in my life that I've never personally known a Betty that I can call BJ Betty. God damn I it. Because I love that name. God damn it. All I'm right. Never. Betty White, you had your fucking chance. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, Queen BJ was Nancy Reagan, though. Oh uh, man! Oh, absolutely. Um, she could suck the crow up a trailer. She put hitch. her. She'd put. Her, she'd fill her mouth full of jelly beans and blow, <laughs> blow Ronnie behind the oval desk in the Oval Office. Um, after engaging in premarital coitus with Jimbo, Tina starts to dress and move around the bedroom. She looks outside and gets defenestrated, which means she got. Thrown through a fucking window, for those of you with poor vocabulary, only to have her body crash into a parked car. A parked car that windows explode before it even gets yes. hit. What do you give this kill? I give it like a 6 out of 10 because it did honestly watch that the first time scare me. But like even as a kid, that's a two-story house. 
She falls on top of a car. Yeah, that's not going to kill her. I mean, it's an exploded, magical exploding car. So the concussion of the explosion that caused the windows to break. What if that the the forces of her going down and the explosive force going up cracked her spine, and that's what killed her. And she mind. and it gave her an embolism or something. Yeah, six but, out of ten though. I mean, it's really good. But I I actually gave her a six out of ten. Now logistically, this makes no sense. It makes my head hurt because I just don't understand geographically how this works. Now I'm going to explain this. Okay, so. Jason is in the kitchen. He goes, he stabs fucking Jimbo in the hand with the corkscrew, and then he whops fucking uh, Crispin Glover in the face with the meat cleaver. Then he's outside on a fucking ledge. He goes, we've already established there's a a door to the outside in the kitchen. He climbs up a drain pipe. That's fine. That's fine. He pulls her out. But then the next cut, it's him in the kitchen pulling the knife right next to where he previously was. So my point is, logistically, you may have a point in what you're just saying. The logic, however, doesn't make sense of, like, why would he... He's basically... He's a CrossFit bro, and he's looking to get his workout in. Going up and down, good cardio. Okay, well, good for him. He does run in this film, so he's he's working it. He's getting them gains. Yeah, he's he's trying to make himself look good in booty shorts. (laughs) And, I mean, summer... It's It's probably... around the corner. Yeah, and and the lake is there. He doesn't want to look like... He's got to get his beach butt on. Yeah, I apologize. It all makes sense. (laughs) Um... Terry and Tina are played by Carrie and Camilla Moore. They were both hired after producers auditioned Camilla, who was in, who basically informed them that she had a twin sister and that they were both willing to do nudity. God bless America. Hell yes. Number 10, a stoned Teddy, who is played by Lawrence Monison, who we mentioned in the Cannon Cup, is starring in The Last American Virgin, the most depressing comedy ever yes. made. Ted is ogling a black and white silent titty flick when the film reel runs out. As Ted turns around, he is stabbed through the projector screen and his head uh, just slides down. It's a slow, uh, arduous kill. Uh, What do you give it? I give it a seven and a half out of ten because I like the scene leading up to it. Again, we messed up on the titty tally because there's titties in the film. Oh, you're correct. You're people, correct. we apologize. We're gonna read. We're two hours and seventeen minutes in. God damn it! Scrap Burn it this fucker. To <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, yeah, I, I give it a seven and a half. But again, the thing running out, the sliding down, I liked it. But I mean, it's not like I don't, the, I don't, the atmosphere. I kind of dug. I guess. That's exactly the point I was getting ready to make. I gave it a six out of ten. The kill is nothing really special, but the I have a fear of like certain ambient noises. Like static on a TV, or like when you're listening to a record and it gets to the end, and like that, or a film projector just movie. click, clack, click, clack. That puts me so far on edge. So, in terms of suspense, this is one of the more effective kills yeah. for me, but the kill itself leads wow. is, you know. Yeah, nothing special. And it seems the height of the screen, like Jason probably had to like duck an inch or so to really hide behind it. Because it's not, like, up to the ceiling. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is he is stoned in an 80s movie That's logic. He's you know, got to die. Yeah. He's stoned watching pornography. Well, I was going to say, he's, he, oh. he deserves to die because he is stoned, absolutely. But yes. he's, but in 80s movie logic, that means you can't see things. That's in your, true. Like, you got that tunnel vision of weed. Yeah. 
a little bit of trivia. Lawrence actually decided to get stoned prior to shooting this scene (laughs) to add authenticity, but it only made him paranoid. And evidently, they had a tough time getting him out of his trailer because he was like, oh my God, I'm going to fuck this up. And um, do you, when you see him, do you, uh, do you, does it come across he's actually stoned? I'm knowing about it after the fact, I, I I honestly can't be objective about it. Because now that I know about it, I see it. But do I really see it? Or, you know, again, I, I think he should have just acted I, if, or manned up and not been a bitch if he got high and did it. It's not that hard. If I had not known this, I would have never... It would have not read to me as Yeah, it wouldn't have been like, man, that's the greatest stoner performance ever. No, but now that I know it, I I think I see it, or yada yada. Uh, Number 11, moments after taking Sarah's virginity, Doug, who is played by Peter Barton, showers that stank off him, but is paid (laughs) a deadly visit from Mrs. Voorhees. Baby boy, that being Jason, who shoves his hand through the glass sliding door of the shower and gruesomely crushes the head of Doug against the bathroom tile. I gave this a 10 out of 10. I gave it an 8 because it is really good, but this is one of those instances where, like, the editing does, like, this is one you wanted to linger on. This is like the the crushed head and... uh or the eyeball popping out. This is one you wanted to see his face really fucked up. I think it's a little too quick. There is something that viscerally bothered, like the hand coming through the glass. Yeah. You know, there's glass chunks. and gra- But again, 8 out of 10 still. This kill is wonderfully brutal. And it's effective because as a man, I can empathize with the vulnerability of being naked in the shower. That's I- when I'm at my fighting prime. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you a story. So... When I was living at home with my parents, you know, back 20 years ago, I came home from school one day and my parents were not there. They usually worked, you know, odd hours and I never thought to like lock the door or anything. So Is this, I, did you, you don't end up raped at the end of this story. No, okay. no, no, no. I don't want to hear that. No, no, no. But anyways. We talk about that off mic. <laughs> my, one of no. their, one of their friends who I was not expecting to come home was like, just like they basically told us go in there and, and make yourself at home. And we'll like, you know, be there in a bit or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm in the shower and I hear (laughs) shit going on and I fucking lock the door. Now the problem with all this is like, I was like freaking the fuck out. Like, Oh my God, somebody's in my fucking house. But there was no window in our fucking bathroom. (laughs) They built a standing shower and they built over what used to be the window when they renovated. So I'm like hunkered down and like I've got a fucking flower pot that was in there and I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And finally, like I, after like a half an hour, I hear my parents' voices, and I'm like, "Oh my god, he's they're gonna fucking kill him!" Ah, and then nothing ever happened to me. You know, obviously, eventually, I'm like, "Oh, there's laughter," so I guess I can peek my head out and see what's going on. But that was a fucking terrifying situation. So I, yet again, personal experience. Yeah. I can empathize with the the terror of this because I thought I was moments away from having my head rammed into some I get that. tile background. All right, number twelve. Having just been dicked down by Doug, Sarah, who is played by Barbara Howard, who a year later would find great success on the series Falcon Crest, discovers Doug's slain body and flees, but she gets an axe to the torso instead, an axe that goes through a wooden door before going into her midsection. 
What do you give this kill? I'm going to give it uh, like an eight and a half out of ten because didn't she really get hurt? <laughs> like something like pop up in her eye or something like in I the am... in the effect. You're you, she's getting or am I confusing you the may, chick from seven? You may have you may have insight that I'm that I don't have. Uh, I, I'm not saying that that's that didn't happen. I, I just chick died. from I'm seven sure. heard there was something like in in a director's commentary or some kind of documentary. They're talking about something with the blowback got her. Honest, okay. If now that I'm you've got me doubting. You may be right. I'm pretty certain it is, but I'm still going to give it a seven and a half because it's just so ridiculous. Like he he's got X-ray fucking vision. To, oh, here she is now! Wham through the fucking door. You're going to deduct points off it because you're a nerd. I I gave it a four out of ten. <laughs> the Sarah character stereotypically in these films would have been the final girl if not for the inclusion. She got that dick. But the inclusion of the Trish character uh-huh. is also the other factor. But if you take Trish out of this movie, she like the, it's she's she's the good girl who she could be the Sydney Prescott. You might even say of this, you know, the woman who does lose her virginity but still rises to the challenge and defeats the killer. Well, she doesn't. So she's <laughs> no, she not. doesn't. She dies like a bitch. Um, she's rotten in hell. The unfortunate situation that both the character of Doug and Sarah find themselves in is that there is additional footage in the work print that you know has never been officially released but of course I have a bootleg copy yeah. of it but they really flesh both her and Doug's character out and the the flirtation between them and like and it isn't more a thing where like Doug is just like oh yeah I'm going to take this girl's virginity no it's just a sweet little story between a guy and a girl and I love the exchange they have where they're sleeping in the same room and they have bunk beds and it's like you know what you know do you mind sleeping in the sleep. you know in the bottom bunk yeah. or whatever it's like are you going to Blah, blah, blah. And it's just a nice little It's nice cute. little thing. And one of my favorite dumb moments in any horror movie, I guess, where she's just improv and have some business. She gets out of the shower. She goes, she starts blowing it out in her hair and then goes back in. Like, That's, you know why? Because she's fucking dick crazy. She, she just got... She, she just, broke the seal on her sin hole and, and now the demons are calling for more. Yeah, and that's what got her killed. That's why Jason was able to track her. the demon hunter. Because of the fucking scent. The scent of her menses. Yeah. It tracks bears. <laughs> it tracks bears. Okay, uh, a little bit of trivia. Barbara Howard was willing to wear a bra and panties for one scene, but unlike the other actresses, she refused to go full nude. Now, producers hired an actress named Robin Woods to double for her in the shower scene, and that's where yeah, her rear end is pressed. pressed and that's some good stuff. Um, but this is pretty much Robin Woods' claim to fame as being an ass in a Friday Thirteenth movie, which is more than I've done in I've, my yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. She's attained higher achievements than we will ever. All right, coming to the end, number thirteen. Trish and Rob investigate the neighbor's house and make the dire mistake of going to the basement where Jason repeatedly stabs Rob with a garden tool. This moment is made all the more ghastly when Rob helplessly screams, He's killing killing me! me. Oh, God. He's killing me. What do you give this kill? I give it a 10 out of 10, because, again, when I was a kid and watched it, it didn't really hurt a curve, but I think around about sophomore year of high school, I'd rented this again. It was No, I had recorded it off, like, Cinemax or HBS, watching it, and the fucking garden, like, 
spiky instrument. I'm not a gardener. It's you know. like for tilling. I know. Soil. Yeah, the till. And just screaming, ah, and it's, ah, he's killing me. And it's so savage. And it's just him screaming, he's killing me. It's fucked up. A 10 out of 10. I, I gave it a 7 out of 10. Now, some people, unfortunately, find this scene funny. And... I couldn't disagree more. Uh, a lot of the other kills are quick and to the point, but this this kill is Lingers. prolonged. You you are there for basically the entirety of this this moment, and he's not just killing him. It's the it's the fact that he's realizing he's going to that, die. That he's that there's there's nothing I can do. Like even if you save me right now, I'm still going to die. And I find that. That really, really fucked up because he's so helpless. Now, Rob, to me, is an interesting character, um, but he's kind of a missed opportunity. He has a motivation for seeking Jason, but but timeline-wise, it just doesn't quite make sense. Uh, Director Joe Zito had this to say about the character of Rob. We butt up against Friday the 13th, Part 3 in chronology, yet Rob is doing some stuff that he hasn't been doing since a couple of days ago. When I read it, I didn't connect the character uh, with someone who had died the same day or the day before or a few days before. So I assumed Rob had been searching for a longer time than it turns out he actually was. So here's the thing. Rob's character is the brother of Sandra from Part 2. Part 2 would be on Friday... Part three would be on Saturday, and this movie would technically take place on a Sunday. None of that really makes sense because you really this sort of a refresher that like in terms of like these movies, they're all yeah. at least the initial ones, even though there is a connective tissue between the three of them, they're all supposed to be kind of like on the beginning of the weekend because why would this this group of kids come out to the lake to stay from a Sunday to a Monday? Spring break, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot Here's of sense. Here's also the thing. Do they say specifically at any point in in part four, oh, it's Sunday? Well, there's uh, they're on the news, and I believe it uh, yeah, is... Yeah, never mind. I was going to try to say maybe it took them a few days to walk from the morgue through the woods backcountry to get back to Crystal Lake, and maybe it's like a next Sunday, but it is on the news. That runs well, out. but that's that's before Jason is resurrected. That's that's when they're like, she's like, oh, I, can't, I came in here to oh. watch the news, Axel. Oh, yeah. So, so I, mean, I, guess, I guess you could argue. There's a but, but then again, like, no, because it's they they show paper. up and they talk about, like, oh, Trish, you know, you want to come over and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. it, it's... It's just bad writing. It would be better. It's a fun, yeah. It would be better if it would expand it upon, but it doesn't really hurt the movie. You can't really get too down and dirty when it comes to so those details. The man those who details. got upset about logistics of going up and down stairs. That's, or... that's, that's different. <laughs> Watch the fucking scene and you'll agree with me. Because once you I'm see not it, disagreeing. I just like you, arguing. It's Once funny. you see it, once you see it, it will bother you. All right. Um, a little bit of trivia. Joseph Zito based Rob's death scene on an article he had read in the New York Times about the real-life murder oh, of yeah. Kitty Genovese, who was stabbed to death in the middle of the night walking uh, to her apartment. The article claimed that 38 neighbors heard her scream, Oh, my God, he's stabbing me. He's killing me. But no one did anything to help her. Zito had intended this sequence to be particularly gut-wrenching as Rob you know, had been established as, you know, this capable opponent for Jason. Unfortunately, during 
screenings of this, a lot of people found the comedy in it. And I don't know necessarily that this is always like, ha-ha, that's funny. I think sometimes people will laugh at situations like this they're because they're, they're uncomfortable. Yeah, laughter's definitely, like, I remember there was some dumb indie drama that the ex who shall not be named was making me watch back in the day. And it ends, like, with this girl having a bad mental breakdown. She's off her meds. She's having a scene. And she gets shot at the end by, like, cops, you know, trying to come in. And I, my first reaction, although there's an effect of it, I was like, huh. You know, because it was such a shocking release moment. So, yeah, it can be that. Yeah. To, for, to really make a scene like that funny, you have to hit, like, uh, throw in some whoopsie noises. Uh, and a slide whistle. All right. Number 14. A prolonged series of cat and mouse between Trish and Jason culminates when Tommy shaves his head and attempts to emulate. Ah, and turns up his collar. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> so I apologize for not the details. That, that really makes it right there. Attempts to emulate Jason as a child. This causes enough of a distraction for Trish to strike Jason with the machete, which removes his mask. Tony retrieves the machete and plunges it deep into the side of Jason's head. Jason falls to his knees, and then he slumps down as the machete slides deeper into his head. With Jason seemingly dead, Tommy and Trish embrace, but a finger twitch alerts the animal instinct inside of a young Tommy Jarvis to open a can of whoop-ass and hack Jason with that machete until the camera fades to white. What do you give this Ten kid? out of ten, and it's one of the best uh, responses in a horror movie. Uh, there's that, and there's Jamie Lee Curtis in H2O, and they're carting away him. We're going to forget the next one ever existed. Canonically, it ends at H2O. She's like, no, fuck this. He's going to come back. He always comes back. I'm going to take him and cut his fucking head off. Tommy's like, finger twitch, you know, and bodies move and twist and death spasm. He don't give a fuck. He's not risking it. He just hacks that motherfucker. Good on it. It's, it's such an explosive, memorable <sighs> moment. I also <sighs> gave it a 10 out of 10. Um... Every hack of that machete has weight and feel. Uh, Wasn't he hitting on a big leather roll, or he's sitting on some like? It's uh, they had they had him uh, hack uh, bags of sand. Yeah, with, uh, yeah, with the machete, the and it feels even though you're not seeing it. It's just the it's all the reaction of of like his he's face. Loose. And, he's got it. Like that is a good acting moment. He had to act that, and he's throwing his entire body into it. I mean, he it's. It's such a little person doing such a big thing. It's just it it plays so cinematically. Yes. Just the the slowdown and the the echo of the the disjointed voices. Tommy, like it's just it's so perfect. I I can't say enough positively about this. In my opinion, and you may have a, a rebuttal to this, and I invite your. Okay. But in my opinion, this is the greatest slasher villain death ever. In a film. Yeah, no, no, I agree completely. Uh, temporary or not, this kill was intended to be the de- de- definition and definitive uh, of death from the writer Bar- Barney Cohen, who had this to say. The idea for the last movie, which we thought the final chapter was, was just to resurrect Jason one more time, then kill him in a way where the film grammar says he's really dead. If there were no sequels past this point would this have been a 
fitting conclusion to yeah, the series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they fucking took him out. Uh, you know, and I'll even give give him part five, because technically part five doesn't violate anything in four. I, so it still would have been a fitting conclusion to Jason. But, uh, no, I mean, they, they, well, uh, I love that kill that the, there's something about the, how the mouth goes slack and stuff as the machete sliding up his head. It's one of, well, one of the perfect. more controversial elements of, of this film, um, being that like, yeah, this could have been an ending is it's the implications of what it sets up. Yeah, Tommy's going to be the killer now. So even though Jason may be physically dead, his evil has seemingly jumped into little kid Tommy. Um, just what do you what do you think about this? I, I think it's a dumb tackle, and they should have left off. If I mean, I get why they did it. It gives them room for a sequel. Which they kind of did take advantage of in part five, and we're told kind, very quickly kind of. <laughs> they were told very quickly bad idea, motherfuckers. And like, we're sorry. We're how about a zombie? We'll do a zombie. Everybody <laughs> loves zombies. So uh, I, I just if they were truly meaning to end it, you know, no, just hey, fade to white. Maybe give them a, a wrap up, like getting in an ambulance or something. Just don't do the evil eye. Okay, who who did it better? Uh, evil passing into Tommy in this film. Or evil passing into Jamie in uh, the Return ending of, of part of Halloween Four is way better. I mean, the the fucking stabbing her stepmom that that's way better. Which which is I would have rather seen that than going into Tommy. Well, I I don't think anybody. Well, I, I would hope that no one would argue that Halloween Five is better than no, Friday no, no, Thirteenth no, no, Part no. Five. No, no. So I would I, I'm I'm of the camp. I would rather have seen Daniel Harris uh, sort of struggling with the the evil of Michael Myers. But I don't. I just don't think that Tommy a, an did evil, nothing to deserve it. An evil uh, incarnated child in a Friday Thirteenth movie. I. I Halloween. Maybe you could do a movie of that, but as far as like continuing a, a multi-year sequel, no, they should have done a crossover with Daniel Harris and my up dick. The Curse of Thorn. I agree, Daniel Harris. Yes, and my dick. always, and, and uh, fucking uh, Tom Atkins as his character from three. Even though the first one, which could have been filming a based on a true story Halloween classic, and he has to defeat her. With his dick. With his dick. <laughs> As, that's how he solves all his problems. <laughs> that or his mustache. Oh you don't want him God. to whip the mustache out. All right. Um, so I, I think we've definitively answered that them they they made the wise choice in not entirely following up evil Tommy. No, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Tommy Jarvis trilogy is great. I love it. Oh, my God. So Friday 13th final chapter... What's your final verdict on it? My final verdict on it, like I said, when if you just say any slasher film, it's the movie that pops in my head. It's everything. This it's it's the absurdly high number of sequels. It's the great kills. It's the hot teen cast who's not really teens. They're all late twenties to early thirties. I don't think anybody's in their thirties here, but they're definitely early to mid twenties, at least. You know, uh, you got the little kid thing, which came in later. It wasn't really a big thing in slashers prior to this. But uh, no, it's, it's it's a perfect movie. Again, part six is only by half a nut hair my favorite. 
And that's just because the end of the walking in the lake fucked me up as a kid. But no, I love it. It's great. I I think at the top of the heap of Friday the Thirteenth films, there there's always going to be the debate for for my money between the first movie, which admittedly is is not the best, but it's it's the most of, it's the most effective in terms of like if you've never seen it, but in terms of Jason's you know, high hierarchy, it's always going to be part four and part six. And really they both serve the same purpose in different ways. If you want a scary movie where Jason is the antagonist, part four is the best. If you want a fun movie where Jason is still evil, but still killing the fuck out of people. The killing is fun. Then you're going to want part six. They're to me, they're, they're bookends of what's best about the character. It's like Nightmare on Elm Street one and three. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, with a with an underrated movie uh, in between them, I That's love super underrated. I love both part two of Nightmare on Elm Street and I love part five. I know we've shit on it a little bit, but part five has some great fucking enchiladas. <laughs> part five, uh, maybe that might maybe not saying definitively that might be the next one we do next time. There's a Friday the Thirteenth. We there's so much to talk about in that movie, and uh, it might be hard uh, to stop. You know, we'll have to stop recording just from the fervent masturbation. I mean, from, yeah, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to like take Deborah. salt, Peter. We're gonna have to knock it out two or three times, <laughs> and then we're gonna have to take salt, Peter. So we can't get an erection. But then we'll probably just be like milking our prostate. Me. It won't stop. It won't stop me. It won't stop me. Deborah, Deborah Sue Voorhees, them titties gives me gives me going. But yes, no, I love it. It's it is the. Uh, Oh, it's just a great man. You're right. The 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 scary real slasher movie, the fun. They both serve the absolute apotheosis of the reason why people watch uh, slasher movies. Well, we could easily go on another hour verbally masturbating about Friday the Thirteenth. I'm physically chapter. masturbating, and and that's your right. <laughs> That's your right as an American and as a man, a white man. In yeah, we've been oppressed too long. Uh, but for the sake of time and sanity, I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode. But we're going to be back later in the month for an episode. Unfortunately, we had the table a while back, but we're going to get it rolling for an episode of Rants After Dark. We'll be back with Scream. Fuck know, yes. Yeah, Fat Tony's looking forward to defend it. And I'm, I'm going to be uh, singing its praises in some terms and explaining why it doesn't hold the same place in my heart as it does for his. And uh, stay tuned for that. I'll be back later in the month. Till then, please subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. And don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. For the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt, a sticker, or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com. For Fat Tony, this is Brendan A. Lane signing off. Till next month, Rant Army, keep marching.